frontier. I tried to picture clusters of information as they moved through the computer. What did they look like? Ships, motorcycles. Were the circuits like freeways? I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see. And then, one day, I got in. Hello! <laughs> My name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast, and we have just seen Tron 2. Uh, <laughs> That's so much better than the Journey song I would have picked. <laughs> uh, that, uh, I am joined by Christian... Mar- Mortoski, I think? Christian Mortoski. Hang on. It's, uh, it's actually pronounced Quora. And Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, do you have a Tron 2-related tagline for us? Oh, so that's what a grid is. <laughs> <laughs> I had a different one, but that one seemed to... All right, that worked. Uh, Dingus, why don't you tell people, in case they don't know about this Tron 2 movie, tell us a little bit about what it is and before we move into spoiler territory. All right. This week we actually saw Tron Legacy in 3D. I don't know what you're talking about. Tron two what? Are you serious? I guess that's true. We I thought it was Tron. the Tron Two Legacies. The Tron Two Legacies. It is. It's the 3D the Tron Legacy. Tron. All right. Well, I screwed that up. Let's go back and redo it. All right. So Tron Legacy. Well done, Dinkus. Uh, it's a science fiction adventure movie directed by Joseph Kaczynski, mm. and it was written by Edward Kitsis and King Ed Rock. It stars Jeff Bridges and Jeff Bridges and is about a man in his mid-twenties on a quest to find his father that abandoned him as a child. It's rated PG for sequences of sci-fi action violence and brief mild language. What was Wait, the- so there's, brief, there's long stretches of unmild language. Right. There's, there's, um, there's, for everyone. Temperate, there's temperate language and there's warm language as well. <laughs> but the older people can't handle the mild. All right, so if you haven't seen... Tron 2, The Legacy, Boogaloo, whatever we are going to call it. If you haven't seen it, be aware we are now about to enter the spoiler spoiler grid. (laughs) We got in. So, uh, Kelly Wand, why don't you... uh, Wait, hold on. What is it? What is the... uh, Kelly Wand, why don't you... (laughs) There's some line about why don't you mess with our zen, man. I think I wrote that down. Hmm. Uh, Kelly Wan, why don't you mess up our Zen thing, man? Oh, with the Tronopsis? A Tronopsis, a Tronopsis legacy. A Tronopsis. Uh, it's a Twopsis. I'm scared. I'm scared of what I'm about to say. <laughs> well, I'm not. Well, Tom and Dingus, finally a movie that taps into our universal childhood nostalgia for beams of light moving in slow motion. <laughs> All right, get to the real thing. Um, so at the start, uh, the computer living in the Arclight's movie screen told me that some scenes I was about to see were in 2D as they were meant to be seen, so I should put on my 3D glasses and leave them on for the whole movie. Thanks, computer. Um, so then a CG-faced thing playing Jeff Bridges tells his kid Sam, who's playing with action figures from the movie Tron, 
that he loves him so much, he's got to go into this video game grid for 27 years to make humans immortal through biodigital jazz, um, even though he ages inside it. And he also needs to get some smokes. And he disappears for 27 years, which means this movie takes place in either 2051 or 1988. I narrowed it down to this, too. <laughs> uh, I think he had this kid before the first movie takes place, even though we never see the mom. But I assume it's the Caddyshack chick. Anyway, so the kid grows up troubled and sad because he's a billionaire with his own company called Encom that Flynn named after his mom that we never see. And mom. <laughs> and they're introducing this new app, the company is, based on Sam's dog Marvin, that he pranks them by debugging it and putting it on YouTube and parachuting off the top of the building and getting arrested. But the cops let him go instead of shooting him because the next scene's starting in his garage where he lives with the dog and a bike and eats TV dinners because he's a maverick. And his dad's friend, Alan Tron, <laughs> middle name Robo, <laughs> uh, comes over and tells him he just got a page on his pager, his 27-year-old pager that he kept in his pocket from his dad's ghost, Sam's dad's ghost, at the video arcade that no one ever bought or entered in 27 years because all the games inside have tarps on them. So Sam goes to the arcade to see the tarps, and he puts on some Journey, because the guys who wrote this movie wrote Lost, but they watched The Sopranos. And he finds a secret door behind an arcade game called Tron No Legacy, and he notices that the door he opened is big, and he finds a magic keypad that hasn't been turned on in 27 years, and he types in the word, uh... <laughs> And that teleports him inside the magical motherboard and shrinks him, too. Um, where his dad lives as a captive of his younger CG self, because you don't age in there unless you're a miniaturized human, in which case your metabolism behaves normally. And a machine scans uh, Garrett Dillahunt's acting ability and sentences him to getting some dancing robot women taking off his jacket with lasers. And he says that it can't be good, hot women taking your jacket off with lasers and they give him a frisbee with his soul in it that you were on your back. But it's also a boomerang, and they put him in an arena with some other dudes who can't act, and Sam tricks them with his inexperience and confusion, so he makes it to the next round, which he wins by losing and bleeding. So his evil dad, whose name is Clue, takes him out of the games and tells him he fell into his trap and that he's the one who sent the page so all this would happen because he has a pager inside the computer and Sam's punishment is to go back into the games where he was already and die like he was already about to before this fucking pointless conversation and they give him a light cycle to escape on and Sam comments that he'll have an aptitude for this because he's ridden motorcycles before and gotten his parachute tangled up in a lamppost and been arrested for being a buffoon <laughs> So he beats everybody except for Clue by teaming up with a plucky program named Reg Edit, but Olivia Wilde shows up and saves him from the victory ceremony by driving him to his dad's house. And his dad tells him a story about how he invented hotter programs called ISOs, but his doppelganger killed them all because he wants to control the real world by sending pages. And Olivia Wilde's the last surviving ISO, and she likes books that Sam calls Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, but she doesn't know what the sun is. Kind of like us in L.A. right now. 
little weather humor. And Sam wants to fight, but his dad's tired. So after they eat some pig made out of binary and they drink some blue wine with an undertaste of Fortran, they show him the bedroom with the race car bed they've been keeping ready for him for 27 years until his evil twin could send a page. But Olivia Wilde sees him moping on his bed through his dad's room with water in it, so she gives him a magic car and tells him to go see this gay, foppish, unreliable David Bowie Merovingian named Printer Cable in Tron City at some nightclub. So he drives into town and gives the car away to a bum and meets the blonde robot lady from earlier who introduces him to Printer Cable's butler, but it turns out he's really Printer Cable. And he just says he's his own butler to prove he's cunning. And then to prove it some more, he starts dancing and laughing and shooting all his customers with his laser cane instead of Sam, the guy he's supposed to shoot. But then luckily Olivia Wilde shows up again just in time to dance and smile. And she has another vehicle. But Clue shows up and blows up printer cable in his club's punishment for being his ally. And Olivia Wilde got her arm cut off by a lightsaber. But Jeff Bridges brought a vial of arm juice, so while she reboots her arm, they ride a trolley down a beam of light that's going right where they're going while he tells the son another story about electronics, man. And they reach the portal that'll let Sam go back to his normal boring life as a billionaire son, but Clue shows up too, and he's mad because he made the perfect system, and uh, that system made my eyes hurt. But anyway... uh, Jeff Bridges uses superpowers called his outstretched hands to kill him and nuke everything, which wouldn't have worked in the 27 years before because it wasn't the end of the movie yet. And Olivia Wilde's turned into a human for some reason. So Sam takes her on a bike ride because his motorcycle jacket's back on him somehow, even though the fembots destroyed it. And Olivia Wilde stares smiling into the sun until she goes blind, her arms around her soulmate, Sam Flynn, while his expression's thinking about nothing at all. The end. <laughs> wow. Oh, it's Lisa T. Kelly Wand. <clears throat> I'm going to need an intermission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was glorious, Kelly Wand. Thank you. Right, on to We've got to get something out of that movie. That's my contribution oh. to Tron Legacy. That's my legacy. That was my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand's legacy. <laughs> Wand's legacy. <laughs> Uh, all right. Did any of us like this movie? Did any of us uh, find anything other than Kelly Wan's synopsis uh, worth sitting through this thing? What? Matt Garrett Headland's a real discovery. He makes him <laughs> like James Franco, huh, guys? It's no, it's no accident that they named him Sam. I yeah. It's like Jeff Bridges just won the Oscar, so you want someone who can hold his weight with Jeff, Jeff Bridges, like acting wise. So that guy, woo, that's good. So well, I'm I, at Chris Pine. I will say that my uh, my main fear about Tron actually was that it was going to be terrible, and that came true. But I thought it was going to be terrible. <laughs> I, I was worried it was going to be terrible in a different way that it wasn't terrible. So let me tell you guys what my concern was about Tron. And this is some uh, for, for me some redeeming value that this didn't happen. I had seen recently the the PG rated Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is also a Disney. <laughs> And that thing, quit laughing, Dingus. <laughs> you know you wanted to say it. I took me. the bullet for all of it. Those wand, wand left. Kelly wand, quit laughing. You seeing the Sorcerer's, what was it? Sorcerer's Apprentice, Nick Cage, PG. And it's a kiddie movie. It's full of, like, kiddie jokes, and it's aimed at, like, this the youngest common denominator. It's that kind of thing. And so I was worried, because Tron is PG, I was worried that same thing was going to happen. I didn't realize how old uh, Garrett Helgeland was. Uh yeah. This guy, because I, I just knew he was the guy who played Aragon in that dragon movie, uh, which I hadn't seen. 
Uh, so I thought, you know, Tron, they're going to make it like a goofy, stupid, PG-rated kiddie movie. And I'm glad that's actually not what happened. Uh, instead, they made it a... They made it very much in the spirit of the first Tron, in that it's sort of an incomprehensible mess. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> so in that regard, it was a, it was a fitting follow-up. Yeah. And, and not the kiddie movie I was worried it was going to be. Because I can't imagine kids watching this thing. Uh, I can't imagine anyone watching it. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, it's like gay in a Batman Forever way. Like a lot of dancing batons and shit. And nothing... You know, you you call it gay, Kelly Wand, but I actually kind of thought it it was uh, as far as the some of the visuals were pretty sexy. I mean, other than Michael That's Sheen, gay too. <laughs> other than Michael Sheen's That's... Alan Cumming uh, performance, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I I thought that I didn't think it was gay. I thought it was it was pretty sexy and it looked good and it looked cool at times. Uh, it's just the fact that all this cool looking stuff was in a really stupid bad movie. Uh, if Joel Schumacher had made Star Wars, it would look just like Tron Legacy. Why now? Why are you I, see? I, like I, the the Joel Schumacher Batman was just like campy and ridiculous. No, it's people dancing instead of walking when they're fighting. Like they, there's like everyone posing and right. skin tight and nipples. It's just like this movie. No, I disagree. And they're blue and the bad guys are red, just like Star Wars, just like Joel Schumacher. <laughs> It's like they, isn't that a Tron thing? Like, isn't that how it was in, in the original they movie? They were yellow, I thought. I think you're yellow. the Tron nerd among us. What, what color were they in Tron 1? Black and white. Because <laughs> that's a classic, isn't it? Uh, uh, did any of us go back and rewatch Tron 1? No. I watched the sex scene that they deleted between the Caddyshack girl, Cindy Morgan, and Tron. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, that, that, that is, she was in Caddyshack? Hell yeah, Nate, topless. Wow, okay. And she's not even in this movie. That really bummed me out. We get a, a, a woman who was once topless. Never mind, Olivia Wilde. There was not a sex scene in the original Tron. No, no, it's deleted. It's online. Right. All right. But, but what, is, uh, what is this online you're talking about? <laughs> wait, <laughs> what happened to the David Warner character? This is this must be torture to listen to for Tron fans. <laughs> I don't remember anything? That, like I I didn't understand Tron one like right after I saw it. It ends with like a helicopter landing and everyone's smiling and I didn't even know that what was going on there. Like does everyone die? Uh. Do you do you watch it, Tom? Because you always watch stuff. Right? I I have not watched Tron recently. I the last time I saw it was a couple years ago and I just thought it was a mess and it didn't make much sense. But it had some potentially cool ideas about, uh, you know, re- religion and electronics and stuff that I don't think it really appreciated that it had. Um, mm-hmm. it, it touched on things and then ignored them, uh, which is kind of what this movie did. Uh, but how do you how do you let that many years pass and not not do anything with those ideas uh, and not do anything with with it's sort of furthering the, the visuals even inside the, the computer or the video game or wherever the hell they're supposed to be. I mean, how do you let that much time pass and not do anything? Yeah. Think it's when they you don't, they not ignore the Internet. The Internet's not even mentioned in the movie. It's oh, no, I, 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 I thought that up in 85. Yeah, see, they talk about Wi-Fi. So, Dingus, right. when you say not furthering the visuals, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, I don't... We're supposed to be goofing around with a gaming environment, I guess, inside this system. Uh, and the most they did with with the whole light cycle fight was was sort of spooge and gloss it up and make it 
more than one, more than two dimensional, um, and I I don't find it particularly beautiful. I know I know you said that it, you think it's it's dead sexy in there, um, but given where graphics have gone in the interim, I would think there would be something graphically going on that would be mind blowing, and instead it's just the same sort of dead world. See, I don't. I disagree with that because I don't. I think you might be misremembering how rudimentary Tron looked the the, the original movie. It was uh, only in two G, huh? <laughs> well, regardless <laughs> of the three D, just as far as the computer graphics back then. I mean, I remember as a kid being blown away by that, but I don't. I think the the graphics in the first Tron are really dated. Uh, and I did find the stuff in this pretty sexy, um, although I took issue with a lot of it. But stuff like the the light cycle and the new uh, what are they light fighters and 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 the the updated recognizer uh, and you know all, a lot of the stuff w- was a nod to the original Tron, like that solar sailor thing that they that train that's from the original yeah. Tron. Um, yeah. So for, so for me, it, it was, there were a lot of updates, there were a lot of callbacks to the original Tron and some new stuff, like Olivia Wilde's uh, Tron buggy or whatever you want to call that thing, uh. or Tron car. Um, I, I loved the visuals. I mean, I, 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 like I said, I wish they'd been in a better movie, but I really thought they did a good job of recalling the original Tron and gussing it up with more contemporary I I thought they shot their wad early, and they give you the discs and the light cycles, and I was like, "Wow, Tron's way better than I expected." And then after that, there's nothing good. There's but you didn't like her. Oriented. You didn't like her her Tron car. She never uses it. They drive somewhere. It's never used in like an action scene. Is it? It breaks into the whole light cycle grid, and it's got the. It's got. It reminded me. There's a game called Crackdown where you you uh, you play an agent <laughs> in this futuristic city, and you get a special car. And as you upgrade your car, it starts to grow like bigger tires and armor platings, and it kind of morphs gradually. And she, her her car did that kind of thing, like when she drove it out into the outlands or whatever they call it. You know, it got bigger tires. And uh, well, why don't their cars do that? And then it's a morph battle, or something. They didn't have any cars. They just had the. The, the motorcycles that couldn't leave. They it. didn't have anything. They had we- they're, they're supposed to be controlling the whole place, and none of their shit works. Well, the thing, yeah, the movie had no sense of like any sort of meaningful rules or ecology or yeah. hierarchy of who was more powerful. I mean, no interest in its own ideas. Like, oh, they eat and drink. Really? Right. Uh, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> that, that's or, a or very. Or the, or the guy who's so concerned in that very first scene about going back to games. Don't make me go back to games. Don't make me go back to games. What's that about? Why? Yeah. Why does he care? I mean, See, that's they, an original. That's from I, I vaguely recall that from the original Tron. Is programs that either were, were buggy or had errors in them. They would flush some of them. Some of them they would send to games. Like it's where programs said. sent to die. So I think that was another callback to the original Tron. But I don't. I, there's so much in this movie like that that I think would make no sense to someone who doesn't remember the references. Just uh, not an MMO. But it doesn't explain it to us, right? I mean, exactly. I, I mean, I could, I couldn't even rent Tron. It's not available through Netflix for some inexplicable reason. Um, so, so this guy's all concerned about going back to games. What? Why? I mean, he's obviously been there before. Uh, so, if you lose, what's the consequences? If you die, what's the consequences? Since he's still alive, and then he ends up just killing himself rather than go back to games. I don't understand any of the consequences or stakes or rules right. in that whole thing. So the light cycle. The whole light cycle sequence is meaningless to me because the, I, I don't get – there's no relationship with anybody else in, in the room. 
I don't really care too much for Garrett Dillahunt or whatever his name is. You guys quit saying that because Garrett Dillahunt is a really good actor. I love that guy. I'm sorry, Bill Garrett. Me to get, get, oh. We're not making fun of Garrett Dillahunt. We all love Garrett Dillahunt on this podcast. Is it, isn't We're it saying Elkerman? his name and ruining the other guy's career. That's what I wanted. I'm sorry to cut you off, but what, is, it, is it Helgeland? I, know, I think I'm just confusing him with the, the script. It's Headland. Head, Headland. Headland. Garrett Headland. Okay. There's two people it's named Headland. Garrett. Yeah. There's, there's Bo Garrett and Garrett Headland. Right. Neither Bo of whom can Garrett. act, one of whom is, is uh, amazing to look at. Right. And, and he is. Uh, He's really... Right. <laughs> Which one? Bo Garrett is the girl who plays... Uh, Jim. Name. Jim, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, who I thought was beautiful. And I, I got to say, too, that's another thing, is I loved those... I noticed in the credits they're called sirens. Like, I love those undressy women that come out and, and undress him. Uh, that, I, uh, I wish they would have put him in high heels. And he would have had to be in high heels for this. <laughs> but there, there would have been were, like were little absurd touches like that, like him running around in high heels. Why did you do that? So, well, it, it, I really like how Kelly Wand put it, in that the movie seems to have no interest in its own ideas. Yeah, yeah. And then, Dingus, you were saying that no characters connected with each other. You're absolutely right there. I mean, it, this movie seemed to me like it was just something done by a, a visual artist, like a guy who just had these visual ideas and nobody knew what to do with them. So they just slap the name of a sequel on them and make them look vaguely like the first movie. And uh, so, yeah, I'm with you there. Some suits hired bad writers and awesome visual special effects people. Right. And a movie was made. (laughs) (laughs) The end. They do such weird things with the relationships in this movie. Well, I mean, before you have... we talk about the people, I want to talk about the relationships, but I want to touch real briefly on my problem with the life cycle stuff. Uh, I, I really thought that that was sexy. I remember when that teaser came out um, at a Comic-Con or something. You know, you could watch it briefly online. It was yeah. it interest up before I think the movie even entered production. Jeff Bridges was involved. So a complaint, and I'm curious, and and this to me goes back to what Kelly is saying about the movie's not even interested in its own ideas. The light cycle stuff I thought looked fantastic. Um, Except for the fact that it it breaks what made the first movie cool. And what made the first movie cool is this sense of a digital world where the normal rules of physics, you know, the normal rules as we know them are suspended. And one of the ways that's expressed is in the way the light cycle does a right angle. Just with no sense of of inertia or weight, it can just magically turn at a right angle. Um, Whereas here, instead of doing that, and that creates, again, a sense of, you know, physics don't apply. These, These light cycles are made of light. They don't have weight, so they can do that. But in this movie... You know, there, there's no right angle. You know, the right. cycles curve and they turn and they bang into each other. And Make they, it look cooler. And, and there's even, there are points where they're, they're walking uh, and you hear footsteps. You know, these are not people made of light. These are people with weight, <laughs> with, with inner, you know, they step on something that makes a noise. Those recognizers, which are those, those sort of, I don't know what you'd call that shape. They look like square arches, those flying robots. Uh, in the original movie, they would just silently fly around. Here, there's a, there's a shot of a recognizer coming into land, and it's got, like, jets underneath. And they're kicking up, like, dust and wind. Uh, yeah. And there's no sense that this is a world where the normal rules don't apply because things are made of light and information. And although I thought it looked sexy, I really sort of missed the, that cool bit of the first movie, where they were interested in the ideas that it raised. And here... You know, just like you said, Kelly, want make it look cool. Yeah, they didn't try to make it look digital. That's such a great point. Like the the women wore high heels. 
because it looked good. And so they're there walking awkwardly in high heels like women do. It's, I, yeah, I hated it. God. Sorry, Dig Disco. No, one of the things that Kelly, because um, we, uh, I saw this, I was sitting next to a guy who really reminds me a lot of Kelly. And um, when, when Jeff Bridges says they're going to have dinner, I, I hear this guy next to me go, they eat? <laughs> and, and, and there are interesting visual things going on that, that kind of can lead to a digital light world, like that, that weird Zen pad that Jeff Bridges is sitting on that are just like floating bits of light up or dro- drops of information or binaries or whatever those things are that are floating up on his, from his pad. Uh, so there, there's a sense that this is another world, but then they're just sitting down to eat. And we don't deal with what, what, why, what, how? Right. Or we go to this club, what's up with that? And, and I like exactly what you said, Tom, about how while there aren't rules of physics, there are, there are restrictions in that first movie. You know, you get the sense that these light cycles are, are confined to the angles they have to, they can only make those angles, they can't just curve all over the place. Yep. And this, this movie immediately breaks out of that, and, and I think they're trying to say, hey, we're breaking those rules, now we can have a lot of different things going on. But I, I don't trust that there's anything in its place. And the thing is, yeah, I don't think they're breaking the rules, Dingus, so much as not even acknowledging them or, yeah, or being yeah, aware of them. Because uh, later on, for instance, we get the escape in the, the light fighters, the little airplanes. And at one point, uh, Garrett Dillahunt, you guys, are, I can't believe you're making me call him that, Garrett uh-huh. Headland. Uh, is in the turret in the back of the one plane, and he's shooting at the other planes, and he yells out, we got to get behind them. What? And I'm like, he did? why? Yeah, that was great. I'm like, why? They're behind you. You've got a gun trained on them. Yeah, why it's are a rear you... turret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why are you introducing this real-world dogfighting conceit at this point where you want to get yeah, around? Yeah, they're on a beam of light. They can't even... They have no portability. No, no, that's that's on the train. They're, they're air light fighters. Yeah. Light uh, and not only that, but the way they end up defeating it, and this is supposed to be, I, I presume, some little rules-based trick, is they, they go straight up, and they freaking stall the other plane. Stalls are a fact of, of the, the way yeah. a wing loses lift. It's fluid dynamics. <laughs> and yeah. they, they invoke this as their little solution to an action sequence. And that is so... That's, that, to me, just says, like Kelly Wan said before, it's the perfect way to put it, this movie is not even interested in the ideas that, it, that, that are present. Instead, it just is going to put in a World War II dogfight with a stall and with having to get behind your, your target, uh, even though the guy's in a target. It was just so inane. Yeah. Uh, because the humans can always outwit the perfect system programs using their own. Like, they're in, this, they're in their zone. They're in the program world. But the humans are using human physics. Well, you see, we learn, Kelly Wand, that uh, Garrett Dillahunt knows how to turn off the lights on his motorcycle and take an off-ramp. We have seen that. That's established in the movie. Ergo, he Cops will... have no defense against that. <laughs> and also, it will teach you how to do the light cycle uh, game in the grid. But right. also, programs will turn against other programs at the moment of truth. Because Rinsler, or whoever that is, says, I fight for the users. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm, just not gonna do, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. The, sc- the screenwriter said, uh, yeah. <laughs> Say that we one. Need... Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into characters then. Uh, uh, so many, so many great characters in this movie. So you just take it away. How, how did this movie handle its, its, uh, its characters? Who's your well, favorite, Dingus? My favorite is uh, 
I was really, I think that this film owes a huge debt to, Ra, uh, what's his name? Zemeckis, who, who lent them Jeff Bridges from uh, Beowulf to star in the opening part of this movie. Uh, I don't know who the hell they thought they were fooling with that. That was uh, uh, so proud. It was that to effect. trick all of the uh, Polar Express fans who would show up. Uh, <laughs> it really was. That just makes everyone... Kids are going to see it and go, oh, his dad's a video game. Oh, so his dad's Clue. Like, that's going to totally confuse the hell out of little kids and traumatize them. <laughs> It's weird, because you just see the trailer for the goofy, you know, Mars Needs Moms or something, and, th- and those people look just as real as Jeff Bridges does at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> I don't know, who, why, the, why, why even bother with that whole thing? It's just so, it's supposed to be this poignant moment, and it's just so, you're sitting there going, who is, why is he talking to that cartoon? Do you guys remember, in, wasn't there an X-Men movie where they made Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart into, like, creepy young versions of themselves? Is it ringing any bells for you guys? Yeah, but I thought I had, it was just a dream I had. Yeah. There's, there's an X-Men movie where it's uh, either Dr. Xavi, I don't know, X, Dr. X and Magneto, whatever. Don't it's, pretend. Shut up. <laughs> 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 anyway, it's flashing back to their origins stories, and they do these creepy CG versions of Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. And, and I, I think that almost never works. Like, do something with poor lighting or, I guess, make it yeah. worse. But, it, it, Dingus, you're so right. That was In so... The Departed, too. They do it with Nicholson. Oh, with CG? So, like uh, C- yeah. they, and it's a Scorsese. Like, Scorsese is using that shoddy trick. Oh, God, yeah. So. Well, I, you know, I, the thing is, like, I this could have been so cool. Like, if, if I... The thing is, I watch a movie like this that's terrible, and I see the kernel for cool ideas, and I hate it even more because the movie doesn't appreciate it. There were a couple of really awesome things that could have been done here. And so, so this reminded me a little bit of Coraline, in that a character goes into another world and sees a creepy version of a parent, a loved one, who, yeah. who, who that person is craving that attention from them. Uh, and, and Coraline is about that. Coraline posits this world with the other mother, uh, and and she looks just like Coraline's mother, except the buttons for eyes. It's this weird little thing. So, so when when uh, Garrett Dillahunt goes into Tron world and and refinds his dad, I was like, yes, this could be a cool Coraline kind of thing. And how kind of scary is it that his dad is being really cold and not warm? Mm-hmm. So that when he meets his real dad, that should have... And, and you know what? That oh. even got me a little bit. That should have had more impact. And, and that was the one moment where I was like, yeah, this could be kind of cool. Maybe they're going to go somewhere with this. And they, there was a great angle with Cora being like the, the sexy stepmom, that whole weird dynamic. And I was like, this, this could be cool. You know, there's this evil dad in there, and he's rediscovering his real dad. But, you know, the movie doesn't do anything with any of that. It just squanders anything that could have been done with that. Um, and that's, that's what I was alluding to when I uh, wanted to talk about relationships is that really actually made me angry is that when we get to his real dad uh, they haven't seen each other for for two decades and there is no sense of that it's just uh, both dads just their main observation is that he's big (laughs) both of them say they kind of play that as a gag don't they yeah yeah and that's that's basically as far as it goes he hasn't seen his son grow he hasn't seen his son grow up it's been 21 years or however many years it's been two decades and and after a few minutes of idle idiotic banter he says well we're gonna eat in a little while i gotta go over here and think for a minute so you do your thing 
and then we'll go eat some fake food. They, they, he's seeing his son, who he was deprived of seeing grow up. And this guy is seeing his father for the first time since the guy just disappeared. Yeah. There's no sense of weight in this relationship whatsoever. And that drives me crazy. This is such an opportunity. And instead it's just, whoa, man, don't, we're not going to do anything, man. Oh, there's a freight train, man. It's just, ah. It's, it's yeah. a father-son relationship. And, and, and he seems to be almost entirely incurious as to, as, as to how his boy grew up. There's a few cursory questions about how his parents died. And that's it. Well, I blame this guy. I mean, you could see Jeff Bridges kind of maybe. I mean, they gave him so little to to work with here. Uh, I, I mean, the script really had nothing in it about that. You know, a couple of lines. There, there's a, there's a moment later in the movie, and I I this stuff bugs me to no end because I I watch it and I think what kind of director would do this? There's a moment later in the movie where Jeff Bridges says to Garrett Dillahunt, uh, "I'd have given it up for one more day with you." Uh, he keeps talking about, and and that he says the line that's you know fair enough. It's not a great line, but he says the line, and then he turns away. You know what kind of freaking stupid director has a character engage emotionally like that with it with this sort of confession, and and then just just have stupid blocking to negate it. I, I remember seeing that and thinking, God, you guys have no idea yeah. what that line should mean or what that connection, what connection that should establish between the two characters. Because no, here I don't miss you that much. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, they've got to have him turn away to do the next scene or whatever. To drive. He's got to go knock on the sky. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy to go knock on the sky, Tom. And then also Sam has yeah. to give her this. Here, give her this. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I go that? knock on the sky. I got to go knock on the sky. You give her this. Aren't, wait, Dad, are we? Are going to say you love me or something? No, okay. By the way, Dingus, that whole knocking on the sky bit reminded me of Jeff Bridges' quote, going on vacation in Tidelands. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wan, did you ever get around to seeing Tidelands? I did, and that's a good yeah. <laughs> Well played. It's a sequel. Oh. There, there were a lot of, you know, I, I, they just looked like they wanted to get... I don't remember Jeff Bridges being this this kooky in the original Tron because he hadn't developed... They love them. Yeah. yeah, they totally made. I mean, they were like, you know what? You were really good in Big Lebowski. Yeah. Let's give you some messing with my Zen line. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, That's lame. <laughs> and since they're ripping Star Wars off left and right, why didn't they just make like him the bad guy? Who the bad guy? Jeff Bridges. He was like the bad. Guy. No, the real Jeff Bridges. Like, what if he's gone insane and that's why he's been in there for twenty-seven years? Because it, it seems like he could have tried to get out. And, or imagine some kind of heart of darkness thing. I mean, there's so many cool things you could have done with this as a, as a, you know, absent father. You know, son tracks yeah. down his long lost father, and uh, or make Clue the perfect father. Make Clue yeah. the the actual perfect father because he's always searching per, for perfection. You know what? Though the thing is, at this point, we're second guessing it. But even if they had done yeah. that, I'm convinced it would have been incompetent. I mean, just nobody yeah. writing this story had any. So I, another thing too. So the ISOs. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm pushing it here. Are they the Jews? Ooh, <laughs> racist. <laughs> no, they're the Metachlorians, you racist. No, there's this idea that they were, like, rounded up and purged, and she was the last. Right. Maybe it was more of a fifth element thing, or I don't, I don't know. But Dude. They, they just manifest like fire, because nobody <laughs> creates fire. It's just manifest. Why does he just make more of them? <laughs> well, Never that's mind. the thing is he didn't make them. Like, they, they, they manifest, man. They manifest. Oh, they manifest. Yeah. <laughs> like fire. You don't make fire, right. it doesn't matter. No, fire, matter just appears spontaneously, like fire. 
See, that's another thing. Where it's a digital world. There's no matter, you know, that sort of thing. If it had been curious about its ideas instead of this weird flashback prologue to explain, I, I don't. Is she even the MacGuffin? I guess she is. I don't know what. Ooh. Oh yeah, she is. Well, She's the she, fifth element. Yeah, exactly. What is she at the end though? What does she have powers in the real world, or is she just? It's like a. Out? No, it's kind of like a Matrix ending, Kelly Wand. It's like mm. and now it's up to you, and then they fly off. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> she smells his hair and looks at the sun. You, you smell like jail. You were right. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Wand, you had some comment about they messed up Olivia Wilde's hair. Explain yourself. I thought she looked awesome, by the way. Oh, she was cute. She was. I cute. just like skin. I don't like skin tight outfits. When you, I'd rather look at her flesh. Even even Bo so Garrett, because I thought Bo Garrett's outfit was flat out amazing. That that. Because I look at her and I go, "How am I going to get you out of that and have sex with you?" It's just like another hassle. You know? So this, you're basically objecting to this on the same grounds Tom was objecting to Black Swan. Not enough nudity, but I still have high hopes for Yogi Bear in that. <laughs> I can basically see your nipples. Why not just let me see your nipples? Right. I don't want to. Uh, but her hair, she looked like um, like Hit Girl. They made her Hit Girly. And then I go, oh wait, ah. she's a Hit Girl. Oh, wait, Hit Girl's underage. <laughs> and it was sending you when we were messages. okay. When we were second guessing, was hey, bring Chloe Moretz in instead of this uh, Sam character. Let let this be a. a a cool, good actress who could do this job that's reunited with her father. But then yeah, Tom's right. Any any amount of second guessing we're going to do, they're just going to be too incompetent to pull it off. Yeah, they'll just screw that up. Uh, and again, after this many years, I don't understand why you bother if you haven't figured it out. I, I, <laughs> they don't figure things out. Well, so here's, they, it's not like dude. Spider-Man 3 where they just had to throw it out or dash it out the gate. They, they, have, they do that with every movie. I'm telling you, Brad Bird is writing uh, Mission Impossible 4, and they, there's like the, the producer like, yeah, we need to see a script like two weeks ago. And so he, when you want to see the script, he pulls out of his desk like four pages, like this bare outline. He goes, that's it. <laughs> and they go, oh, thanks. Actually, that was pretty helpful. See, Brad Bird, though, knows what he's doing. This guy, right. what was his name, Joseph Kaczynski? Is, is, they had four pages of Brad Bird. His four pages are better than these guys. Right, right. This guy is, I think this is his first movie, isn't it? He was a commercial director, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Uh, he just, you know, he's a visual stylist. You know, they, they just dump a lot of material in the lap of this visual stylist, and he makes it look good. Here's another thing. This movie screwed up for me a perfectly good soundtrack. So I, I had told you guys before that uh, so so this was available the soundtrack was available on iTunes like about a week before the movie came out so someone in quarter to three I think it was Andrew Mayer thank you Andrew posted about it oh no it was Rorschach sorry uh, Rorschach in quarter to three posted about it and I was like you know what I'm looking forward to the movie I think it's gonna stink but I like Daft Punk uh, I'm gonna download the soundtrack so I downloaded it I've been listening to it all week I love the soundtrack I like Daft Punk and uh, it's it's different from their usual music it's a lot more orchestration which is fine. Um, and I, I grew over the course of the week to love this music. And then the movie came along. Yeah. And there were brief flashes where I was like, yeah, this looks great. Yeah, it sounds great. But for the most part, I was like, I don't think I want to go back and listen to the music anymore. Now it makes you think of that David Bowie guy, doesn't it? Oh, and not only that, but just uh, just so many stupid things. Uh, yeah. Like the, the well, nightclub scene, for instance. Well, you're I, the one who can distance himself from source material, so just block out the movie. I don't like block to out source material. I guess so. And that guy's next movie is The Black Hole, another Disney classic from... Wow. Is it now, now a reboot or a sequel? It's got to be a reboot, because it's not called Back to the Black Hole again. <laughs> Black Hole Legacy? Legacy, right. <laughs> uh, but well, now, more and more, I'm convinced the problem... Real quick, Tom, before yeah. you 
before you go with that. The, the problem with scores now is not, not necessarily the writing, it's the mixing. Uh, they don't know what they're doing when they're, mixing, when they're mixing the scores into the movie. They're letting music overwhelm scenes over and over again. And, and the perfect example of that is, is, is The Tourist, how the, the music might be fine on its own, but it overwhelms every scene that it's in. And, and you talking about how much you enjoyed listening to the music and then seeing it where it should work for you, mm-hmm. and it doesn't because they don't know how to mix music. They just pound it at you. That's driving me crazy more and more because I'm a lover of soundtracks and scores. I collect them. And seeing, seeing the way the trend is going now where it's totally overmixed and overwhelms the scenes is driving me crazy. It's See, ruining so many scores for me. I know that about you, Dingus, but that was not my problem here. And I would be curious if that's how you felt. I actually thought that the music and the action mixed very well. It's just that there was no meaningful context for it. That so much of the action was stupid and betrayed the potential for this world. Uh, what, what little enjoyment I got out of this movie was from the visual style and the music. Even though it uh, was, at times, I think what you would consider overbearing, I thought it was entirely appropriate. And one example, I'll give you an example, uh, is the, the nightclub fight, which is absurd. I don't know what's going on. You know, Kelly Wan tagged it perfectly. Michael Sheen is just randomly shooting people with a laser cane that nobody knew he had. Nobody's really, it's not a fight scene, it's just dudes jumping around doing cartwheels and they later i guess cg in laser bolts i don't know what was going on they have one opponent (laughs) (laughs) and And, and then at at some point uh cora shows up and it's got you know this very driving music behind it the music's really overbearing and it really hits that point hard and that worked for me that was fantastic for that one brief instant, but then nothing happened after she showed up. Well, actually, and then Flynn shows up, and that's even cooler, but nothing happens, and then they run away into an elevator. I mean, it, there was that's no cool. payoff. So I liked, I liked some of the visuals and the moments and the, the soundtrack and the way they corresponded, but without context, it all felt wasted. So as, as you guys, having not acquired this fondness for the soundtrack over the course of the week, did the music work for you guys? Dingus, did you feel it was overbearing? You know, overbearing is probably the wrong word, because as you described that, what I was thinking about was the lobby scene from The Matrix. And um, if you think about the music in that, mm-hmm. and you think about the word overbearing, you could probably use that. But the music is so well integrated, even though it's pumping and oh, pumping and hard, jeez. Uh, even though it's it's just this driving music that oh, that could overwhelm the scene, but it's so well supported by the characters and the context of the situation that it's this amazing whole that goes together and just drives the film forward and makes you just want to scream. And I think that maybe that's what the, they're trying to go for that at that moment that you're talking about here where, uh, where, um, Mike, Michael Sheen is doing Willy Wonka or whatever he's doing up there. Um, That, but there's nothing supporting it. There's just music, and there's nothing to hang it on. So, so not having any any um, experience with the soundtrack leading up to it, the music, I kept trying to listen for it because I knew you had talked about how exciting it was. And and before the film started, you guys were just still coming into the theater, uh, and the uh, <laughs> Thomas the usher, getting stoned. 
the, the usher guy who, who greets you at the Arclight, he came up there and he's this real, you know, really active guy, kind of obviously a budding comedian because he said something like, yes, yeah, sir, I remember my first beer. But his first line when he got up there was, hey, you guys ready to get your daft on or what? And the entire audience just went, Ooh. Oh! <laughs> so I was excited to hear it. And so I kept trying to listen for it and wondering which is deaf which is Daft Punk and which isn't, and wh- what are they doing here? Uh, but there was just nothing to hang the music on. Yeah, well, it's all Daft Punk, by the way. Uh, there's, it's not like they did. And there's also, I don't know if, I know that at least a few people in the audience appreciated this. I guess you guys didn't notice this, but did you, did you know the Daft Punk cameo? Because I thought it was a little too self-aware for me. I don't know who they are. Really so Daft know. Punk are a pair of, they're, I think they're French. They're European. That's all you need to know. Uh, uh, they're, they're two guys. They do electronic music. Um, and whenever they appear, they don't allow their faces to, to be shown. And they tend to wear, like, helmets in, in concerts. And uh, So in the nightclub, there are two dudes in helmets that are clearly, at, at, and I've since confirmed this, it's a Daft Punk cameo. Uh, now, who knows if they're actually the guys who, in the helmets, but that's what it's supposed to be. Is who isn't wearing a helmet in this movie? I know, I know. But the, 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 there were a few gratuitous shots of two helmeted DJs controlling the music. Oh, at the nightclub, right. And those were, those were actually credited as the two members of Daft Punk. They, turn, they pump it up once the fight starts, like they right. start playing different stuff. And they do takes to each other. I mean, they're little characters. They're like uh, the band in, in the cantina in Star Wars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zeus, Zeus directs them from time to time, doesn't right. he? Doesn't he right. say, like, pump it up or yep. something? Like exactly. Uh, so that was Daft Punk, uh, those two guys. Uh, wow. They stole the scene. And it also had, the, the movie had a little bit of a, uh, like, it had a little bit of that John Carpenter electronica stuff. Like, yeah, I listen right. now to the soundtrack of, of uh, Escape from New York. That stuff sounds absurd to me. Like, I can't believe it's a kid. No it's way, just dude. John Carpenter pinging away There's on a couple cross. of keys. No. I've said that before. You totally defended that time, you well, jerk. I, def- I defend that I like it, but it's bad. I mean, I like plenty no. of bad music. It is. Fine. What? You guys don't understand music, man. <laughs> you don't understand biodigital jazz. <laughs> By the way, I saw the Daft Punk stuff as being the digitized version of the Journey music that was playing in the arcade. So it's like, that's what it's been rendered into, to his digital ears. Ah. So, Kelly Wan, you've just give, given this movie 300% more thought than the people who actually made it. Nice work. By the way, I will say, for the most part, I hate being in my 40s. Getting old sucks. But the really cool thing about being in your 40s is that you have... A, a long history of music to draw from. So, when in that arcade, when the journey starts playing and it goes to the Eurythmics, the "Sweet Dreams Are Made of This" song, I was like, "Yeah, being 40 is awesome." You know, <laughs> 20 years ago, this music, you know, it's still in your brain. You can tickle things awake. <laughs> the filmmakers care about us. They really care about us. Uh, I like being in my 40s because Olivia Wilde's always 20. So. All right, Kelly Wand. Uh, all right, so let's see. Um, how do Should you guys talk about what worked for us? Or uh, yes, but before we do that, I want to talk about uh, how much is it ridiculous that in the 1980s we're talking about Tron right now. Okay, <laughs> I just want to make sure. How ridiculous is it that in the 1980s they thought that frisbees were so cool? that they would make great weapons. And now, in Tron Legacy, when they bring out the Frisbees, I'm, my thinking is, you know what? Yeah, that, that's no lightsaber. Uh, <laughs> a Frisbee is a weapon? Mm. It could be a better weapon in an R-rated movie, if you know what I'm saying. 
But again, I don't understand what the why this is. This is something that holds their soul, and they're going to use it as a boomerang yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> and all you can do against it is dodge it or deflect it. Back. Doesn't seem to be a prudent use of your soul. Right, you're throwing your soul. Around. That's like hitting. That's like going to a foreign country and using your passport as a missile weapon. <laughs> you don't want to do. <laughs> Uh, right, but but see, Tron has two light uh, lightsabers. Has two uh, discs. See, you see. That's not that legal. Is, yeah, is that even legal? <laughs> well, there is there are some things that could be so cool if 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 it, as Kelly said, it if only it's was cool. Right, is <laughs> like like the light cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just a little a little wand you can hold. So so I, I would guess her her awesome buggy would be I don't know a vest she carries or a backpack. But but there's no th- those things don't. But the jets again, the jets are things that they can just jump out of a window and and generate around themselves somehow. So you would think there'd be all all manner of of these things, a hierarchy of of things they could use and weapons they could use that are that are made of light, that are upgrades that they could get from various places and walls. And and he picked up an extra light cycle. And what did he do with that? He put it in his pocket or just lose it or who forgets it. They just didn't. They could. They could have a whole encyclopedia of things they could do, and they just didn't care. I do want to defend briefly. The extra light cycle did come into play. His light oh, cycle got trashed, so he was able to jump on the other one to try to save the guy who didn't have a light cycle. Like, like I think that okay. did come into play. But I, I'm with you there, Dingus. I mean, again, cool ideas that the movie didn't seem to appreciate. Yeah. Uh, so that I whole flying frisbee thing is is fine. I mean, you're nodding to the first film, and that was cool in the '80s. But, but get beyond it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's the, the movie didn't know, you know, do we come up with something new or do we do these nods to Tron fans? And unfortunately, they did nods to Tron fans. And for me, throwing a Frisbee just strikes me as ridiculous. That just, eh, it could uh, have been good. You can make that. Really? Good. Throwing a Frisbee, Kelly Wan, really? If, if you put blades on it and... um, Like Krull. If they had made it Krull, it would have been... Yeah, good. that was a cool Frisbee, Tom. The Krull Frisbee. See, oh, and th- this is... This is my complaint that I made initially, where that you're that you're, and I, I respect. There are some things that are sexy about the visuals of this film, but but when the gaming is, we're two guys in a in a colorless grid throwing frisbees at each other that bounce <laughs> off the walls, and that's as far as gaming has progressed in this world. Right. When I think we're a bit yeah, they're playing the that. same games now that they were playing in '82. Well, our graphics processors do quite a bit more, and I think that they could have evolved since evolution is a part of their world. That mm. that these arena games should be a tad more interesting than throwing frisbees inside a grid room. And I don't understand why why these games are that, or why they're interesting to the denizens, or who these denizens even are of this world. It's it's just it's so odd. I don't understand that. I think think it's what they were going for. Uh, and again, it's the, the movie just has no sense of ecology or explaining itself. But I think the idea was that this is a closed system, the computer down in the basement of the arcade that's not connected to the internet, where they don't know about things like Wi-Fi, like they haven't evolved, which doesn't really then explain why it looks so much sexier. But, it's a perfect system. Right, right. But it's, it's a like, closed system. I don't think they know. Like, I'm, I agree with you, Dingus. It could have been a cool script to acknowledge how different the Internet is, how different gaming is these days. Because those are things that the original Tron was about. 
but my guess, and I don't mean to defend them because the movie's terrible, but my guess is they had this idea that it's a closed system that hasn't evolved, that's not on the net, where they don't know what's going on. Well, that's a good point because of her, her ridiculous question about the sun. I think that is a good point. But I, but I think there is evolution within the system so that you everything you're talking about is a really cool idea until the advent of the ISOs, which kind right. of violates all of that. Right. And if you can have a manifestation of the ISOs, then there can be other evolutionary uh, happenings that are pretty mind-blowing. Right. But they just chose not to. They just had the ISOs, which is really very much a midichlorian thing. It's just, <laughs> we, we, need, we need a fifth element. How are we going to do that? I just throw these in. The dingus was a miracle. Oh, that's right. She is a miracle. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, was this movie better or worse than Lawnmower Man? <laughs> One or two. Hey, which was it? Wasn't there a Lawnmower Man about a cyber dude trying to get out of the cyber world yeah. and control the Earth? Was that it's one or two? Based on a Stephen King short story about a guy who ate grass. Right. <laughs> and instead, they made it about a yeah, cyber. Yeah, they turned it right into a real because the title just lent itself to computers. Lawnmower Man. Virtual <laughs> <laughs> reality virus. Um, Tom, I think these movies make nerds look bad because it's like they're thinking that. Or, like, we're supposed to be going, man, I wish you could go into my computer and throw a frisbee with a bunch of dudes and jumpsuits, and a hot girl picks me up in a car, and then she comes out in the real world with me, and she's into Tolstoy. <laughs> but she's more into Jules Verne. I like, they didn't, they, oh, she, yeah. has, she has the highfalutin literature, but it's really the Jules Verne that she likes. Mm-hmm. With all those references she makes, like, yeah, Jules Verne. Do you, do you know him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's he like? <laughs> that was all right. What's Jeff Bridges talking about to his son at the beginning? He's he's saying something about how the how incredible it is going into the digital world. I think he's found the ISOs. Isn't that what he's that's what he's leading up to? Is telling his son about the ISOs that he's going to bring out to revolutionize the world? Oh, okay, right. Uh, Which they don't. They do. His son. It takes him twenty years, but an ISO gets out, and in Tron three, what's on? Right, go on. Then, uh, well, I don't know. Happens. I, I, I'll get back to you on that. Probably not. Cora's going to eat the sun. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well. I like the sidekick who knocked over the lamp. Okay. Oh, Do my God. Else? Thank you, Kelly Wand. Oh, that was my favorite part of the movie because of yeah. how, how much Dingus was giggling at it. Who, it and he was hilarious. probably just giggling at it because I was giggling at it. That was, <laughs> what was that was scene? Funny. I don't know, but it was good. That was when um, when Clue first goes to uh, Flynn's pad, and he's like, it's mm-hmm. cozy. No, but why would they put in a scene of the dude knocking something over? They don't. It's a, it's, they don't show him knocking it over. You hear, like, a clatter, and he looks over, and he's looking like he didn't knock something So was that guy then supposed to be comic relief at that point? Yeah, that's like, his program. That's oh. his program. Um, well, it worked for me, whatever the reason was. Forward slash trip clatter. <laughs> I loved that guy, because at first I thought he was like the mouth of Sauron kind of a dude, and then he's such an idiot. Mm-hmm. At, at the end, he he flip-flopping back and forth his loyalties. Oh, it's, uh, I liked that guy very much. I was bummed when he died. I was like, ah, oh, this movie sucks. <laughs> I was pretty, that was pretty brutal, you know, just uh, you know, to show that Clue is a bad guy. He's just going to de-res one of the dudes. Uh, he made the perfect system, and his, his second-in-command is, is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows where Flynn lives all that time, and he doesn't just take him out. Uh, he doesn't. He does not know. Yeah, that's how. Uh, Kelly Wan, you have to follow these movies very closely to understand what's happening. 
Hmm. Did you guys like Tron's death scene, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite bit of dialogue where the movie, I realize this movie has no idea what it's even talking about. At the very end, uh, Bruce Boxleitner, who I still have no idea what he's doing in, in this movie. I think he's supposed to be trying out, I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. At the very end, Garrett Dillahunt and Bruce Boxleitner are talking, and Garrett Dillahunt says, oh, and you were right. And Bruce Boxleitner says, about what? And Garrett Dillahunt says, <laughs> about everything. That's how the guys who are lost wrote the script. Exactly, like, that, yeah. I want to know at that point, what is going through Garrett Dillahunt's head, or not Garrett Dillahunt, uh, Bruce Boxleitner's head, like about everything? Like everything I have ever said? <laughs> He's thinking, this kid's the new me? Fuck. Why do I still have a pager? Will somebody tell me that? Mm. Uh, my favorite line of dialogue was, Tron, what have you become? Who says that? Uh, Jeff Bridges yells that? Yeah, Jeff Bridges yells at it. Tron, what have you become? Yeah, wow. I really was, I was too vague to follow. <laughs> oh, another favorite line. After he says, I think, uh, no, dude, it, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to go anywhere. And then very next line is, hey, ever hopped a freight train? I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what I just said I was going to do. Uh, how about Sam's little one-liner after shooting down? Uh, actually, does he shoot down an airplane, or does he throw someone off the solar train? Or then, Sam, then Jeff Bridges says, "Don't get cocky, kid." And then it's that it's the equivalent of that. Sam says, "Have a nice swim." Oh, what that mean? Because uh, I, I think they were flying that, that that before that line. I didn't realize they were flying over water. And then after that line, I was like, "Oh yeah, I think there's water down there." Oh, there's water that was, amp line. That was photon milk. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty to three, and when I'm caught in between, come one, two, three, feet apart, and we get down with three feet. That was a good choice. I'm legacy. Hmm. I support you. Legacy, I, Tom. I want to highlight another bit of bad dialogue that I, I love. I hope this isn't a spoiler, but uh, I, I saw Unstoppable, the Tony Scott thing about the trains, which actually is not bad. A big surprise, Unstoppable is not bad, but there's, a, there's an awesome moment in Unstoppable where Chris Pine and Denzel Washington are getting to know each other. You know, they're, uh-huh. they're, 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 they, they clash at first, but they learn to have a mm. respect for each other. Right. One's old, one's young. They have to work that out. Exactly. So Denzel Washington, at one point, you know, they're talking about their families, and Denzel Washington says, my daughters are doing the whole working as a waitress thing to put themselves through college. And Chris Pine says, oh, where? And Denzel Washington says, Hooters. <laughs> like the question isn't where are they going to college the question is where are they working as waitresses <laughs> and it wasn't played as a, pretty good. It wasn't played as a joke or anything there's a lot of like Hooters product placement in the movie because it's about you know the the Midlands it's uh uh but, Wait, uh, is the train crash into Hooters? His daughters do work at Hooters, and they're watching the action from Hooters. There's a lot of... They're on break! Punch it! <laughs> Hooters, was it? What is it? It's a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right, what is our what is our three by three this week? Who's Who's uh, got this one? I think this is Dingus. Yeah, yeah. Me. Uh, this, this is all me, baby. This is your, mm. your favorite masculine, very, very masculine poems in movies. Uh, it's not. It's not favorite sports moments. Your the favorite, instrumentals count. Your favorite moments of sports poetry. <laughs> Gladiator poetry. Oops. Wait. What if? What if the dialogue in Tron Legacy was poetry? Just dialogue. No wait. What if the special effects were? No wait. <laughs> what if the costumes made you feel poetic? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to be going first because I am introducing the three by three uh, for next week. 
Uh, my number three instance of poetry in movies is not the poem per se. It is the group of dudes who say the poem and the response afterwards. And it involves Garrett Dillahunt, the actual Garrett Dillahunt, not Garrett Hedlund. Um, in the very opening of Assassination of Jesse James, there's a camp of dudes sitting around about, about to rob a train. And it's where we kind of meet the cast. And you've got, uh, you've got uh, Sam Rockwell, Garrett Dillahunt, Paul Schneider, and uh, Jeremy Renner just kind of sitting there. They're, they're part of the posse. And they're talking about women. And Paul Schneider's kind of the ladies' man. Uh, and I love the fact that his name in the movie is Dick Little. <laughs> so he's the ladies' <laughs> man. Uh, and he's talking to them about having had sex with, with a, an American Indian, with an Indian, a squaw, he calls it. And they're saying, what's it really like? What's it like? And Garrett Dillahunt, who's the really dumb guy, uh, recounts having the one time he's had sex. And it turns out it was with a prostitute. And so he says to Paul Schneider, you know, you've got a way with words. You know, maybe we could write her a letter. You know, he thinks that this woman is going to fall in love with him. Uh, and, and Paul Schneider recounts this bit of poetry uh, that I had to look up. I don't know. It, it's from Catullus, a Roman poet. Uh, and it's basically about uh, how what a woman says you can't really trust. And Garrett Dillahunt is blown away. Uh, and the, the dialogue in the assassination of Jesse James is so poetic anyway. I mean, it's so... Uh, like Deadwood. I mean, it's so stylized, and, and it's got this sense of like it took place in a different time when people spoke differently. Uh, but so, so Paul Schneider recounts this burst of poetry, and Garrett Dillahunt is like, yeah, that. Can, can we say that? Can you write that down and we can send it to her? And Paul Schneider says, nah, poetry don't work on whores. <laughs> no. That's not true. That is so not true. <laughs> but the thing is, Garrett Dillahunt has completely missed the point of the bit of poetry, too. Uh, and I love the fact that it's, you know, it, it's it, assassination of Jesse James is about people who aren't necessarily educated. Uh, you know, these guys, it's, it's like locker room talk from 1881. Uh, mm. And some guy, you know, Paul Schneider is probably the best educated of them, uh, comes out with this burst of poetry and uh, and how it sort of emerges in the conversation. Uh, I love that. It doesn't work on strippers or Hooters girls, but whores. <laughs> whores what's, the, what's the poem in question again? Uh, it is, so it's where Garrett Dillahunt uh, talks about how this woman said things. Uh-huh. You have to hesitate now. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Garrett Dillahunt says this woman said things to him that nobody would just say to someone. So it must have meant something, so she must love him. And Paul Schneider says... My love said she would marry only me, and Jove himself could not make her care. But what women say to lovers, you'll agree, one writes on running water or air. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's where Garrett Dillahunt's like, yeah, that. We should write that for her. <laughs> Paul Schneider's like, nah, poetry don't work on whores. <laughs> I like that. That's a poetic statement. Wait, who wrote that? It's I had to I had to Google it and oddly enough all the Googling brought up assassination of Jesse James but uh, mm-hmm. if you go deep enough it's a, a Roman poet named Catullus Catullus oh right right Catullus or, I don't know Vangelis uh, a dude who wrote in Latin I'm assuming uh, all right so that's it my rhymed in Latin like that that's it's amazing how that works isn't it <laughs> he made up the whole thing it was in pig Latin or something <laughs> all right Dingus what or no Kelly Wand what is your number three. Um, here's something I wrote while you were talking about Jesse James. <laughs> Olivia Wilde puts the leg and ass back in legacy. Okay, my number three, um, poem so I, I thought Bo, Bo Garrett did a much better job of putting that in legacy. Is that the blonde girl? Yeah. 
Yeah. Dog? She's not in it much. She's in it. Neither is Olivia Wilde. Mm-hmm. Everyone's not in it. All right, Kelly, what's your number three? Yeah, anyway. Uh, Back go on talking about how much you love Tron Legacy. They're both fine women in general. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, okay, here's the poem. Name the movie. Ah. The game. Oh, pointy birds, oh, pointy, pointy. Anoint my head, anointing, nointy. <laughs> oh, uh, is it the... Um, chewing gum is really gross. Chewing gum I love the most. I hate the most. Johnny Depp in uh in the Willy Wonka remake. You sicken me, Dingus. Lost <laughs> story. Ah, that's almost right. That's a foul tip because it was used. It was it was a callback in L.A. Story to oh. to to. Oh, I hate talking to people. You don't know anything about movies. <laughs> Hope they didn't come out wrong. Uh, Man with Two Brains, the greatest Steve Martin movie ever made. Yes, yes. All right, that's my number three. What's the poem? That's like, it. It's a poem he makes up? No, uh, he said somebody writes it. It's the works of John Lillison, England's greatest one-armed poet, to his beloved, the, uh... Oh, no, no, right. That's the guy who supposedly wrote it. Supposedly wrote it. So he's, Lillison. he's... He's quoting fake poetry that doesn't exist. Yeah, and he's trying to, um, cheer up Kathleen Turner, who's in a coma... But she's evil, and so that's how he, like, gets her back. Huh. Man with, man with two brains. <laughs> okay. Really? You guys didn't see that movie? I didn't. Uh, I didn't realize that the L.A. story, uh, when he does that, because she, she slams the window on him before he can get to uh, Pointy Birds. Oh, she slams the window. So you just hear, uh, you hear, uh, you know, it's Pointy Birds, oh, Pointy Pointy, anoint my head, and then she slams the window. Uh, but he's referencing all his movies in that. The Freeway Condition sign references The Lonely Guy, um, Roxanne, Poem. All right, Man with Two Brains. I thought you guys had seen that's it, a, and we'd have a, a lively discussion. Well, you discussed well, it. Yeah. No, it's it's a lonely feeling, just being the only person who saw it. That happens just plenty of times. You guys haven't seen Unstoppable. <laughs> I had to discuss it without you, so... I feel Tron bad. Legacy was lonely, and we <laughs> saw it together. I think it's well, anyway, number three. You guys should watch The Man with Two Brains. It kind of sucks okay. after Kathleen Turner's sort of out of the picture, spoiler alert. But, like, the the middle third, genius. Okay, I'm done. Thank you. All right, I will see that as soon as you see Vinyan. I don't speak French, and I don't see movies. But you period. kiss that way. <laughs> what? Wow. I kiss, like, movies? It doesn't make any sense. What's wrong with you? So many things. See, because Olivia Wilde... Never mind. She put the cute back in... Or on. Sorry. Take it, Dingus. You're, you're number three. Oh, yeah, my number three. Uh, it's, uh, it's from uh, a little movie. Um, and this actually is what uh, made me think of this topic. I watched this movie a, a couple weeks ago, thanks to... Your friend and mine, Dwayne Johnson. And it's a movie called The Rundown. What? There's no poetry in The Rundown. What's the matter with it's you? It's all poetry. It's poetry. He's, he is poetry in motion. It's poetry in motion, right. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, the, the Rundown, directed by Peter Berg from 2003. Uh, directed by the writers who wrote Xena and The Loosers. Ah. 
Also Zodiac, by the way. Um, at the end, there's this uh, the this guy. Um, he's uh, the actor's name is Ewan Bremner, and the character plays is Declan, and he's this bizarre Scottish pilot that uh, flies uh, the rock into uh, the Philippines or wherever wherever this jungle is that he's supposed to go to uh, to extricate Sean William Scott Thomas. And um, I just love Ewan Bremner in this movie. He's just weird, and I love his accent. I love listening to him, even though I can't understand half of the stuff he says. <laughs> and, um, and he doesn't want anything to do with their final... The... the, the uh, uh, the final assault on Christopher Walken's camp, where he's keeping Rosario Dawson. And uh, The Rock convinces Sean William Scott Thomas that, that they're going to go in there and get her. And they're going to just march into this camp and do it. But in order to do that, they need a distraction. And so this bizarre Scottish pilot gets his bagpipes and marches into the middle of town with his bagpipes on, yelling uh, this uh, wonderful Dylan Thomas poem. He just is running, walking into town, yelling "Rage, Rage" uh, against the dying of the light, and and so the whole thing goes "Rage, Rage" against the dying of the light, where there shall be no mercy. And it, this is all in his amazing Scottish accent. And at the end of it, he goes "Boom shakalaka tada." <laughs> <laughs> the action starts, and it's just this wonderful, absurd use of 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 this Dylan Thomas poem, and I love little touches like this in what could be a standard action film. This little touch of the absurdity that really makes a film like this uh, sing for me. It's it's not a it's not a great film, but it's it. It works well because it has a lot of little absurd touches, like uh, like this Scottish dude yelling this poem. Thing is, how do you know that Boom Shakalaka is not in the Dylan Thomas poem? You're right. I think it racist. It is in the original, the original version of Do Not Go Gentle into That Good Night, um, <laughs> but it doesn't scan when you actually convert it into the modern English. So they ah. have it up. Boom Shakalaka, tada. <laughs> Uh, isn't Ewan Bremner uh, the the crazy homeless kid in Naked that that Mike Lee runs into? Am I that's that's Ewan Bremner, isn't it? He's the guy. He he was um, Train Spot in Train Spot. Right, right, right. He's in Black Hawk Down. But he's uh, not. Do you guys not remember him in Naked? He's just he, this. Uh, he he's he. He's this just raging kid who almost has no lines. Uh, like he's not. He doesn't have any real dialogue. He's just like muttering yeah. incessantly. Isn't that Ewan Bremner? He might very well have been. I just don't remember. Okay. Uh, Kelly Wan, you strike me as someone who would know naked backwards and forwards. Does that not ring any bells for you? Mm, I know nudity back. <laughs> okay. More back, though. Very good. Yeah. Uh, rundown. All right. That's a good movie. Dingus, do they, do, do they give you much of the poem? Like, do they, does the movie afford much time to... To, uh, like, do you hear more than just the famous Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light? Does it go more into the poem? I don't think so. I think that's okay. really just it. Okay. But, but it's hard to tell what he's yelling because he's also, he might also be shooting or it's, it's just, it's loud and in his accent. And I just, when, when we got to that point of the movie, I just fell in love with it. The bagpipes were involved, you say? Yeah. That's awesome. Good. All right. Well, that's. Or a kilt. Bagpipes, a kilt, something like that. He's being very Scottish at that point. Right, I love I love that accent. Well, my number two, uh, I'm gonna. One of the things I love about my number two is the movie gives it time to do the whole poem. 
Now, now that I've said that, I'm going to confess that I'm, I'm cheating. It's not a poem. It's Shakespeare, and it's not even in iambic pentameter. It's oh, I should have oh. eliminated Shakespeare. Damn it! Uh -huh. Sick and me. But it's uh, it's the it 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 gives the it it gives you the whole monologue. It doesn't cut. It, it's pretty much one shot. It actually might pull out to a wide shot at one point. But it's the ending of Withnail and I, where uh, where and I the, the character and Withnail have split up, and Withnail is is a, alone and bereft. He's, it's it's raining. He's got an umbrella and a bottle of some cheap wine. He seems to be standing in front of uh, it's not really a zoo. It's just like a fence with like dogs behind it. I mean, it looks unglamorous, and the movie affords him the time to do the entire. Uh, Hamlet monologue that begins, uh, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. Uh, and it goes into uh, this, this famous monologue about somebody being disillusioned with humanity. Basically, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Shakespearean screed for misanthropy. Um, and it's just this it's just fantastic moment. Richard E. Grant is so good in that movie. I love that movie on so many levels. But I love that it closes with that monologue from Hamlet. Um, so is that poetry, Dingus? Have I cheated? No, it's not poetry. Is your name Dingus? That's on the play. Is your name Dingus Kelly Wand? Is yeah, this three no, by three? Just, I, I, <laughs> Do you know with Neil and I, Kelly Wand? Yeah, right. I like that, and that's I like that reading, and I like your choice, and I'm I'm sad I didn't think of it, but it's so not poetry, and that's why I didn't think of it. My mind steered away from impossibilities. Well, let's see if Dingus is going to allow that one. Dingus, he's awful cagey, quiet, silent, spooky. It, it totally counts. Of course, Shakespeare's poetry. Kelly, what are you thinking? Uh -huh. Just because, why is it all poetry? <laughs> Just because he was the the bard. Well, some of some of his writing is not poetry. Some of those plays are in prose, and some of them are in poetry. But it definitely mm -hmm. counts. What what I was worried about, as I thought during the week, is that somebody would just rely on an entire film, an entire Shakespeare adaptation, and use that. Uh -huh. But but. I, what I'm relieved with is that you went ahead and, and took something out, and it was used properly. That's exactly what I was going for. I, I like the way that, that poetry is used to uh, make, make bonds between characters and to express feelings in a way that's slightly heightened that you don't often see in films. Aha! And, you can see that. And I watched a film this, this week that used uh, a passage from Hamlet, and, and that's when I thought, oh, no, they might... They might take this the wrong way. They might. They was might, it Hamlet? Uh, no, it was not Hamlet. <laughs> that know. passage gets misused, I think, a lot. Like uh, Macbeth. It's not from Macbeth. It's from Hamlet, and it's got this bit about uh, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, blah blah blah. It's all this stuff about how awesome man is, and that that's used actually in the the musical Hair, in this uplifting, joyous proclamation, uh, which misses the point of it. It's actually in Coraline. Uh, when the two old ladies are 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 their their other world version of themselves as as circus performers, uh, they do that what a piece of work as a man monologue as a celebration. But the whole point of that monologue, and I and Dingus, now that you've talked about what you're going for, I think this is an even I'm I'm just more convinced than ever that this is a, a good choice. That's such a part of his character at that point. Right. Uh, it, because the line, the, the, the monologue ends, uh, a noble reason, and faculties, the paragon of animals. Uh, anyway, it ends with, uh, and, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? You know, it's man is this awesome thing, but to me it's dust. Uh, and, and that's such a part of his character at that point. And there's even, let me throw this out there. 
this might be a little too like wonky beret beret wearing interpretive thing, but that that monologue ends and it's Hamlet talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he says, uh, "But yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me." It's the end of the monologue right there. However, in the play, Hamlet's lines continue. Uh, and he says, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. The implication being that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are a couple of dumb guys who that when he says, I don't care about men, they giggle because they think that the corollary there is, but chicks are hot. So, <laughs> so therefore, there's this bit at the end that, that doesn't have anything to do with the monologue that's more a, a reaction to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern being stupid. So in With Nail and I... Uh, Withnil does the whole monologue, and then he says, and, and uh, yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither. No, nor woman neither. And he let, lets his umbrella fall. So, to, to me, that's an, an important bit, is that uh, this character has remembered that part of the monologue and delivered this bit at the end of the monologue. Basically, there are no, you know, there are no women in Withnail and I. Withnail and I is a very, I think, an early instance of what, what you call a bromance. You know, a story about how men find companionship with each other, sometimes to the conclusion of women, and, and how, uh, you know, they're, they're, I don't think they're gay. I don't think there's that at all. But Withnail has all of his companionship in his life has been fulfilled by this one guy, and he loses this guy. Uh, and I think that's a, it's a weird little touch, but I think it's an important one that he includes that little proclamation in the end that, that women don't delight him. You know, he's lost his best friend and he's lost what he wants for out of companionship in the world. I just love that little touch. Uh, and uh, Dingus' son agrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the big fan of that passage. But that one guy's his uncle, right? Well, there's the thing is he's got, well, yeah, he's got his very <laughs> gay uncle uh, right. uh, whose motives are... Are definitely sexual. Uh, well, that's a silver lining, isn't it? None of my uncles found me attractive. <laughs> well, he also talks earlier in the play too about uh, in the play in the movie uh, about being in Hamlet, like he's an aspiring actor, yeah. and he says, you know, the uncle even has this one line uh, where he says, "It is the most tragic moment in a young man's life when he wakes up one morning and says to himself, quite rightly, I shall never play the Dane.'" It is at that moment that one's ambition ceases. And, and, and that's, you know, that's that guy, I forget that guy's name, he's this great British actor, but that's his uh, sort of gay stage persona. And then Richard E. Grant pipes up, just humoring him, saying, well, yeah, I, I intend to play that role one day, Uncle. And you think he's just humoring his uncle, but you, you find out at the end of the movie that, yeah, he's memorized a, a monologue from Hamlet. He really does think he's going to play Hamlet one day. Uh, but he's also using the line that sums up the situation yeah, yeah. so he gets the play did you ever do hamlet tom you're an actor type oh no good lord no i did a uh i've done a horatio twice i think you were the skull <laughs> what was oh, his no, way. no that's yorick oh sorry uh what was his name what? Oh. <laughs> Dingus is making a gay joke. Out. Woman oh, yeah, delights. Was not, a good one too. Dingus, woman know. delights not me. <laughs> Clearly, Paul Walker does. Totally different. All right, I did, La- I did Laertes. It was one of the best. Ah, that's right. Yeah, Dingus is the Laertes type here. Uh, Kelly, yeah. Watt, you're the grave digger type. None I'm of us. The skull. Yeah, we are not Prince Hamlet, nor we're meant to be. Uh, we have a Horatio, a Laertes, and a grave digger. I'm the fool. 
Actually, Kelly Wine, you're the Ophelia. What do you think of that? Mm. <laughs> That's uncalled for, Tom. Not cool. We're having a nice discussion about movies. You had to go there. You had to be that guy. Whatever. Kelly Wine, what's your number two use of poetry in a, in a movie? I just want to predict that your number one features the line, Oh, Captain, my captain. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? I, you know what? No shame in it, Tom. <laughs> it's natural. You didn't choose to be this way. Oh, that's Don't. good. That is so good. I'm, uh, I'm just... I'm just going to barrel through my number two because I don't really have anything interesting to say in general and during these three by threes in particular. So, you know, I'd rather listen. So my number two is that Dylan Thomas poem that you guys already talked about, but it's Rodney Dangerfield and Back to School. <laughs> I had no doubt. I knew you were going to choose this. I was. That's why I was so excited to do Rundown first. That's why you, yeah, okay. Well, good. You wanted to out, you wanted to scoop Dylan Thomas. No, because I was excited to hear you give uh, his explanation for what the poem means. I don't take shit from no one. I'm staying in school. <laughs> Wasn't like, that it? Did I mangle it? You're an actor type. No, you, you, you absolutely did it right. That's that's his interpretation of that well, poem. Well, Sally, he's, he's supposed to... Uh, I forget who the uptight evil dean is in that. Like the Jeremy Piven in old school character. The guy with the hawk face. The Marblehead Manor butler guy. John C. McGinley. That's Ted McGinley. And no. I can only yeah. picture the Dean from uh, Animal House. When in, when oh, John Saxon. Isn't John Saxon? No. Who's the Dean in Animal House? Oh, what's that guy's name? He's very John Saxon. John Vernon. Very good. Wow. Because the, the place is Werner. Or his name's Werner. Werner. Wait, Dean Werner. Dean Wormer. John Vernon is Dean Wormer. Oh, who cares? Good. Anyway. No, we great. care. Hey, Kelly, thank you. Listening on the internet to this awesome, safe for work. <laughs> Not for me. Uh, wait, what was the... Oh, so yeah, so the uptight dean is dating Sally Kellerman, who's the hot, young English professor who stirs Rodney Dangerfield's loins after <laughs> he uh, takes photos of Adrian Barbeau, his first wife, sleeping with some other guy. And so he's fa- he has to prove all these exams, like, and he was an expert diver, so he passes the diving test unexpectedly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he's about, he can't remember any English things or something, and then Sally Kellerman reminds him of the poem that he used to, he used to love to read in bed or something, and then he does Dylan Thomas, and then that inspires him, and then they win. Which, to me, is why it's my number two, because staying in school is important, kids. And Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> taught me that at a very critical time in my life. Does Rodney Dangerfield actually say much of the poem? He says the whole thing. Awesome. I mean, he says Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Isn't that the whole thing? <laughs> okay, that's my number two. Is that the yeah. one that, that ends with, uh, uh, this is the way the world ends? Oh, that's, that's actually, is that, that's Elliot, isn't it? That's T.S. Elliot, yeah. That's Caddyshack, you're thinking of, too. <laughs> Jackie Mason. Going uh, what is that on. Rage Against the Dying of the Light poem? I know it's Dylan Thomas, but what's the what's the name of the poem? Do you know, do not go quietly. Right. See? Do not go quietly into that good thing. <laughs> and what's great about that, I'm so happy you chose that, Kelly. You make me happy. Thank you. See? What's great is, is that he explains that, that his interpretation of the poem is that I don't take shit from no one. <laughs> Yeah, and they go. All right, you got it. You get an A. You get to. You get to. We're gonna fire our dean because you just said that. So everything works out for him. 
and he his he's like a millionaire for making clothes like pants for fat people, fat men. He's a millionaire. All right, I'm done. <laughs> All right, okay. uh, so he over to is Rodney Dangerfield's Dylan Thomas in Back to back school. school. The last good Rodney Dangerfield, if by good we mean pre Ladybugs. Yeah, great, Kelly. I got it. Thanks. I already read it. I like it. Fuck you. What? That was a good one. No, no. I know. I mean, thank you. <laughs> All right, Dingus, what is your number two use of poetry in a movie? I love you too. All right, my number two is my most obvious and uh, treacly one. And um, Brimstone it, Treacle. It's from Brimstone seen Treacle. That. That's the other Sting movie. Wow, yeah. Mm. Uh, here's, here's a quote from the scene where the poem is introduced. <clears throat> I read a poem of you and thought of his last week. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I hope it's not a Woody Allen movie, but I love your read of it, Dingus. <laughs> I haven't seen it, whatever it is. I have. Fuck. I never get it. I'm so... I'm not a good podcaster. I <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good enough for the internet. It's, it's standards. The bar's too high. Dingus, who says the line? Um... Well, it's it's Michael Caine. I'm not doing my Michael Caine impersonation. But Death Trap. Sleuth. Jaws oh, please don't be Hannah and her sisters. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? Uh, what why do you like that movie, Tom? What's wrong, Tom? No, I do I like do Hannah and her sisters. So I... Okay. So, Dingus, it's Hannah and her sisters. Before you talk about it, let me sort of explain to you what this week was like for me. I couldn't really remember a lot of movies with poetry in them. Like, I knew immediately with Nail and I. So this is the first time we've done a list where I just Googled poetry in movies and came up with all these... I don't know if you guys knew this, but the kind of things we do by 3x3, three by three, you can Google this stuff, and people have done a lot of these lists. So I found this one exhaustive list of instances of poetry in movies. Uh, and I went through and I looked at some of them, and I was like, there was poetry in that? And so I ended up re-watching, there were several Woody Allen movies with poetry. Yeah. And I saw that Hannah and Her Sisters was one of them, so I was going to re-watch that. But then I saw that Crimes and Misdemeanors was also one of those. So I just rewatched Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I, I stand by this. I think it's Woody Allen's best movie. But the use of poetry in it is kind of as a joke. Uh, so I'm kind of wishing that I had instead watched Han and Her Sisters now that you're picking it, Dingus. Um, no, I think, I think that I'm glad you did that because I didn't get to watch Crimes and Misdemeanors. And that might be my favorite. Well, I don't know. Manhattan's probably my favorite. But I think, I think you're, you're probably right that Crimes and Misdemeanors might be his best movie. Uh, but not my favorite, but might be his best. I remember just being knocked out by that. But I'm glad you did that. Uh, yeah, so Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, it, the poetry is played as a joke where uh, Woody Allen and his wife, who he's not really having a good relationship with, are having dinner with Alan Alda, who's this guy he's working with, this sh schmoozy ha Hollywood guy who he despises, and Mia Farrow. Uh, and he has a huge crush on Mia Farrow. He's working with her on a project. So Mia Farrow says a line of poetry uh, and gets one of the words wrong, and Woody Allen corrects her on the one word, and then Alan Alda comes in and says the whole poem. <laughs> and I don't know what it is, but it's this, and, and, and Woody Allen does this, this, you know, this shtick where he's grinning, kind of mugging while Alan Alda's doing the poem, and it, it's admittedly funny. Uh, but it, it's, it's played for a gag rather than any meaning about what the poetry is that's being read. Uh, now, so having said that, what gets done in Hannah and Her Sisters? Well, Hannah and Her Sisters is a, is a 
absolutely earnest use of the poem and it's and um you know i would i probably have to say this is for me and this might be a little bit sophomoric and this is probably when i when i was exposed to this poem for the first time watching this film is that i i think it's the perfect representation of romantic longing that is bonded in a film and a poem that that a that a film uses a poem to to show romantic longing and it's the use of of this e cummings poem he, it doesn't really have a title but the first the first line of the poem is somewhere i've never traveled so the popular way of of, of talking about the poem is to say that poem the the quote that the the film uses as it starts the segment you know because sometimes woody allen will use a title card as like a chapter heading and that's um the, the the title card for this particular segment that introduces the poem is um, oh okay I'm sorry nobody not even the rain has such small hands and so what happens in this scene is Michael Caine has a crush on Barbara Hershey he's married and she's in a relationship with uh, with a painter Max von Sydow and and he Michael Caine who's much older than she is does this elaborate thing where he tries to run into her downtown. He sees where she's where she is. He's planned this moment. He runs several blocks around so that he can accidentally, quote unquote, accidentally run into her and then uh, and then say, I'm just down here meeting a client. She's going to an AA meeting, which she's oh, you ought to take me to one of those. That sounds neat. And and then he asks, you know, I wonder if there's any bookstores around here. And she takes him to this great one of these great Manhattan bookstores that no longer exists anymore. And they're just wandering around among the books, and he just happens to find this E.E. E. Cummings book of poems. And he said, oh, I, wa- I want to buy this for you. <laughs> and no, no, you can't buy that. I want to buy this for you. And then she gets in a cab to leave, and he says, make sure you read the poem on page 112, I think it is. And then there's this voiceover as, as the evening goes on where she's reading po- parts of this beautiful E.E. E. Cummings poem, Somewhere I've Never Traveled, that, that ends with, with that line, nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands. And it's just this great, beautiful little moment in this movie that introduced me to this poem for the first time, and I just thought this poem was incredible. Oh, wow, E.E. E. Cummings, he's amazing. And this is the first time I learned about this as, as a, you know, a college kid. Yeah, that's that's much better than the uh, throwaway joke with Alan Alda. Uh, yep, good thing. I I kind of lean more toward how great the joke is, though, because I I'm a little embarrassed by how earnest this moment is and how much it meant to me. Uh, but but that's part of what this topic does to you. Well, I'm about to outdo you on that. So can't wait to see what you have for your number one. Uh, <laughs> so all right, Michael Caine's E.E. E. Cummings uh, in Hannah's hmm. Sisters. Uh, just don't, I haven't seen it in forever, but does Hannah and her sisters, is that the one where he decides that the value in life is going to see Harper or that he, he's rescued from his existential dilemma by seeing a Marx Brothers movie? Is that Hannah and her sisters? No, I don't know. Wait, say that again. What's that Woody Allen movie where he, he decides that the solution of the existential dilemma, you know, the human condition is to go see a Marx Brothers movie. That's Hannah and her sisters. And it is Hannah and her sisters, yeah. Um, then he falls in love with Diane Weiss. Eventually. No, that's right? that's uh, that's crimes uh, and misdemeanors. Uh, Shadows and fog. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's Zelig? Is that the one where he's a vampire? 
Is that Taylor Lautner? Uh, that's the one where he eats a roach. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the one with Taylor Lautner and Woody Allen? I don't even know who that is. Haha, uh-huh, you don't know who Woody Allen is. <laughs> uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, I was struck by how similar it is, but how it comes to the complete opposite conclusion from A Serious Man. Oh. Hmm. Uh, I think I, I thought it came to the same conclusion. No, absolutely not. Which is that you're screwed. No, the conclusion is there is no moral consequence in the universe. That that sort of, uh, and that you have That's to. That's what learn. crimes and misdemeanors. Oh, we discussed this, Kelly Wand. The conclusion of crimes and misdemeanors is that when you change the, that there are consequences for your actions. When you change the Korean kid's grade, a tornado will kill your son, and, and you will get lung cancer. Oh, a serious man. There's consequences. Right. Right. Uh, but the 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 message of uh, that doesn't explain all the other shit that happened to him. Well, I'm just saying I feel that the, the, the point behind Serious Man is that the, it's the same thing. It's this middle-aged Jewish man wrestling with the meaning of, of life. Uh, that's, the, that's the case in both Crimes and Misdemeanors and A Serious Man. I feel that Serious Man comes to a different conclusion than Crimes and Misdemeanors. Crimes and Misdemeanors, the idea is that it doesn't really matter as long as you can live with yourself. Uh, you know, you, you, if you've made immoral choices, that, that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you can still find happiness. Uh, you know, happiness is all that matters. Whereas the twist in A Serious Man is that actions do indeed have consequences. They're totally outsized your crimes. So, but without... the, but isn't that that underst- or that the possibility of that conclusion ultimately so painful to uh, to the rabbi in in Crimes and Misdemeanors? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's Martin Landau's character though, who he's he's basically the Raskolnikov in this. If you look at it as sort of this modern day crime and punishment, he's the one who commits the crime. You know, right. he murders. Uh, he well, he has murdered uh, Angelica Houston, uh, and he's he's torn about what to do with it, uh, how to deal with that. And just at the moment where you think he's going to break and, and confess to the police, it fast forwards to four months ahead. And it ends with him having this great conversation with Woody Allen, where he recounts the events, basically, to Woody Allen, who he has found out as a filmmaker, uh, his character's a filmmaker. Uh, he recounts these events, and he basically says, you know, I've, I've just learned to live with it. Um, but doesn't Sam Watterson say something? Isn't oh, he a rabbi in that? Yeah, yeah. Sam Watterson is the rabbi going blind. Uh, and doesn't he say something like, I, I don't know if I want to live in a world if that's the... Yes. If that, if, if that is the possibility, that, that there is no moral uh, absolute. Absolutely. Sam, Sam Waterston is the, the rabbi going blind is definitely the voice of sort of conventional morality. Yep, absolutely. And, and the pain in his statement really stuck with me, the, the, the idea of, of what he's sort of carrying forth. If, if this is the world, and this is the world, as, as I think you're right, the movie says, then, then he doesn't want to be in that world. And I think it speaks volumes that the movie has him going blind. Yeah. Right, right, right. But Marshak would cheer him up. <laughs> That's, by the way, is that is Jefferson Airplane count as poetry? Can we use Jefferson Airplane lyrics? <laughs> oh, music, music is something totally <laughs> Yeah. All right, so here's my number one, uh, and this is completely in earnest. This scene just tears me up. Um, I only remembered, the, I actually vaguely remembered it, but it was seen it in somebody's list, uh, that that really, I had to go back and, and watch this. So, uh, Todd Fields directed an adaptation of an Andre Debus novel uh, novella, I think, called The Killing, uh, and he directed a movie called In the Bedroom, with uh, Marissa Tomei and Nick Stahl, their young couple, 
uh, Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek are Nick Stahl's parents. Uh, and the movie is about them losing their, their child. Uh, so a couple of things from this movie, one of which, good Lord, Marissa Tomei is amazing. Uh, I watched Cyrus recently, which is just horrible, but she's so good in that. Uh, I am going to, along with Kelly Wand, Chloe Moritz, uh, who else did I have as a national treasure? I forgot. There was I enough. think Garrett Marissa Headland. Marissa Tomei counts as two. Yeah, <laughs> I dare you. But anyway, Marissa Tomei is, is so good. Who was I calling a national treasure recently? I forgot. Anyway, uh, Marissa Tomei is... Sarah Palin? How dare you. Uh, Marissa Tomei is so good in this. Anyway, so one of the things that's established early in the movie is that Tom Wilkinson has a regular poker game, and he brings his son along, Nick Stahl, and, uh, and they play poker. And Tom Wilkinson is the guy who, whenever it comes to his uh, turn, or whatever you call it in poker, uh, he sits there just agonized with indecision, studying his cards. He can't call or raise or whatever you call it when it's your turn. He's just stuck staring at his cards, and they give him grief about it. And one of the guys who plays poker with him is this old guy, obviously very educated. His name is Carl. And Carl will break Tom Wilkinson's concentration by reciting poetry. So early on in the movie, he recites a Blake poem uh, while Tom Wilkinson is staring at his cards. Uh, and they all berate him, and they say, ah, you got to get out of your Blake phase. And he says, well, you know, when I say my own poems, you guys give me even more grief. So, so you establish there's this old guy who says poetry at the poker game, and otherwise it's just a bunch of guys goofing around. So fast forward to the movie being about the loss of their, their son and how they deal with this. The first time Tom Wilkinson goes back to the poker game, he's with his three friends. Of course, his son isn't there. Uh, and it comes around to his turn, and he's just staring at his card at his cards, and they're, because he's lost his son, they're reluctant to give him a hard time. They're very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, how do you react? How do you act around someone who's, who's suffered through the enormity of what he's suffering through? So they don't say anything. And it's a, it's a, it's a long, drawn-out moment. And Tom Wilkinson is just staring at his cards, sort of in this fugue. Uh, and he, he finally says... You know, he kind of says, will you, will you say something for Christ's sake? Quit. Yeah, he says, quit pussyfooting around me. You want me to stare at these cards all night? <laughs> and the two guys who are there give a look to the older guy who had said the poetry before. And without any sort of preamble, the guy launches into, and the movie lets him say the whole bit. Like, it, I don't know if it's the whole poem, but it's a long passage from a Henry Wordsworth Longfellow poem called Lost Youth. Uh, and it's just, it's an amazing moment because, well, A, it breaks the tension, and Tom Wilkinson sort of sighs and then says, yeah, okay, I'm in. Uh, and they start playing poker again. But the, the context, the, the meaning of the poem is about how when you're young, you, uh, it has a line, uh, a boy's will is the wind's will. And one of the things that Tom Wilkinson is struggling with in the movie is would he still have his son if he had pressured him to do something differently? You know, and it's a source of tension that he has with Sissy Spacek. And this guy sitting across from him addresses that perfectly with this Longfellow poem about how you can't control what a boy does. You know, the uh, youth is something so completely different, and it will go where it will. Uh, and what's beautiful about the scene uh, is A, the poem, but also... The, the looks that, after the tension has broken, that Tom Wilkinson and this older actor, who is so good, I don't know who he is, but he's just so good at delivering in this one little part, uh, d delivering this moment, you know, the looks they give each other as the poker game resumes. Um, 
And it's such a powerful moment. It's on YouTube, actually. Uh, but it's missing... The movie? No, the, the scene with the poetry. If you just uh, type in the bedroom and poem, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's missing the context where they establish that this guy says poetry in the poker games. So it, it seems a little bit more contrived if you just watch it out of context. Uh, but I, I love that little bit of, of in the bedroom. Hmm. Oh, that's a great choice, Tom. That's a great choice. I don't see yep. movies without verbs in the title, so I'll never <laughs> know. But it sounds good. Have you not seen In the Bedroom, Kelly Wand? No. All right. That it sounded it. a little... Uh, it didn't sound dirty enough. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> Sorry. All right, Kelly Wand. see it. It, it. The film just wrecks me. That's a great choice. God damn. That's a great choice. Uh, the funny thing is, too, there's a there's a couple of other... Like, like the four leads are just immaculate. Um, there's, a, there's a priest role... And uh, the priest has a long scene with Sissy Spacek, and I just feel so bad for the guy because he's not good. He looks awesome, but the guy that casts the priest is just not really up to the, the part. <laughs> it's funny. In you my see head, a Gary Dillahunt when it comes to priests? <laughs> well, I, pic- I picture Tom McCarthy playing that part, but I guess he doesn't. Uh, Tom oh, playing the- <laughs> No, no, the priest is like a much older dude who I imagine is some local hire. But the guy they got to do this Wordsworth... Uh, this uh, not Wordsworth, Wadsworth. This Longfellow poem. The, the guy is so good. Uh, you know, his voice is up to it. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's actually like some famous writer or something in a cameo. Um, but he's so good in that one scene. Uh, I think that's Daft Punk, actually. <laughs> Without the helmet. Cool. All right, Kelly. When Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut was in Back to School, remember he helped him write his paper. Dingus, since you're a fan of that movie too. <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, only movie role. Back to school. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's a director, right? <laughs> That's senior. You're thinking of the, uh, Putney Swope. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, neat. Okay. Uh, my number one is, okay, I will do the poem. You name the movie. Here it comes. All right. Beware. Beware. Beware of the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. He eats little boys, puppy dog tails, and big fat snails. Beware. Name it. Uh, Where the Wild Things Are. (sighs) The Hobbit. (laughs) That's about Smog. Pete's Dragon. Oh, good good one. Pete's Dragon. Did you guys see Guillermo del Toro on the Spike Video Game Awards? What was his name? (laughs) That was the last line of the poem. Ah, forget it. By the way, okay. I want to I want to take both of you to task. At one point, I was talking about uh, in one of the earlier podcasts. I was talking about uh, *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas*, and I said something about how good Johnny Depp and Guillermo del Toro were. And neither of you corrected me, so I got away with it. Suck it. In what? <laughs> in *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas*. Oh, like, Johnny I Depp and Guillermo del Toro are so good in that. That's because really? we're racists, and they all have all those names the same to us. Because I said, "Get down to brass tacks." How much for the Benicio? Mm, take the, leave the cannoli. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Need a bigger boat. All right, what's your like... beware thing? Uh, none of us. Okay, wait. I'll do the last line again, and you'll know it. Okay. It's the giveaway. Okay. Beware. Take care. Beware. Peach Dragon is still my guess until you say otherwise. <laughs> All right, I'm not doing this podcast anymore because you guys don't know anything about poetry, obviously. Obviously. I'm just going to sit here till you get it. That's fun. <laughs> you haven't seen it? So the clue is beware. Take care, beware. Cujo. That, 
I know you've both seen the movie, so you're, you're I really seen stupid. It. I do not recognize that line. I would recognize it if I'd seen that movie. I'll bet you you've seen the movie. I'll bet you a dollar. You're That'll be right. fun to listen to later. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good bet when you just agree with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. We'll give each other a dollar. Uh, remember uh, Martin Landau and uh, Ed Wood? He's, like, improvising for that one scene. It's like he's doing the poem. Okay. What's the poem? I don't remember huh? that, no. What's the poem? He made it up on the spur of the moment. It's Martin Landau's Bella Lugosi poem. Beware, take care, beware. From Ed Wood. That's my number one. Suck it. <laughs> so it's just a made-up poem when he's... Uh, why is he improvising? He has Johnny Depp didn't write him a script. Or Ed Wood. <laughs> Johnny Depp, Golden Globe nominee, I think would have handled it differently. Uh, so he just says, by the way, that's another great thing, too, about Hannah and her sisters. Is Martin Landau? Holy cow, he's he's awesome. Uh, so so Johnny Depp was my favorite performance that year. Man, yeah. he is so freaking great in that movie. And in Ed Wood too. I mean, Ed Wood, we wouldn't. He we only have Hannah and her wait crimes and misdemeanors because of Ed Wood because Ed Wood put Martin Landau back on the map. Wait, is that true? Ed Wood predated crimes and misdemeanors. That can't be true. No, it's not. Sorry, Kelly, it's the other way around. Maybe it's the other way around. Thanks to <laughs> Crimes and Misdemeanors, we have an Ed Wood. What was, cri- was Crimes and Misdemeanors 89? 89, and one of the reasons I looked it up is because I was curious where it fit into the chronology of what was going on with Woody Allen's own uh. personal guilt about the stuff with Sun Yi Previn. Uh, and this was before any of that had come out. You know, he, he was carrying on with her. You know, his sort of adoptive... He never but they're still together, so everything worked out. But still, you know, he had, you know, he had his own skeletons in the closet to deal with, and so he writes this story about a guy. Don't be racist. She's a woman with a name, Tom, not a skeleton. <laughs> so, so anyway, so Edward, uh, I mean, Bela Lugosi is improvising poetry in lieu of having been given a script. In Edward, is that right? Some of these, some of my choices are intended just to see how you write them up on the internet. Like, <laughs> uh, Okay, Martin Lando as Bolagosi saying beware, Johnny Depp. Well, I, I I write them up however you guys tell me to. Uh, I don't. I, I never don't, tell you anything. I don't specifically remember that scene, but it sounds good. I like it. <laughs> I like that scene. <laughs> well, I don't know any real poems. I only know remember the ones like anointing, anointing. Kelly, one when when Dingus does a tough topic like this, just Google it. Just Google poetry in movies. Then you just get a bunch of Shakespeare crap. Like, well, but then you, <laughs> <laughs> hope they didn't come out wrong. I meant that as a compliment. You piece of shit. Uh-uh. All right, good. Martin Landau's made-up poem in Ed Wood is or Ellie no, Others or because you might scoop Dingus if you haven't already. Oh, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I'm going to. Your Dead Poet Society probably already did it. Dingus, your number one is Dead Poet Society. Am I right or am I wrong? Hold on. Wait, I, got <laughs> I know uh, the it, sign. You are absolutely. We have warm sign. It is not Captain. My Captain. Okay. Was I close? Is it seize the day? <laughs> it is not. It is Miss Doubtfire. Let me go ahead and do the poem from it. Uh, that was a drive-by fruiting. So that uh, that's a poem I believe she was. No, run up. by. Don't taint that scene. Don't ruin <laughs> it. Sorry, I didn't mean to put... greatest scene ever. 
I didn't mean to put my taint on that theme. I apologize. It's not what you're here for. It's not the position I hired you for. I apologize. It's all right. All right no, yeah, my, my number one has nothing to do with those trifles. All right, here's, the, here's my number one. I'm going to read the whole poem to you. It's not that long. Ugh. And you're not going to get it, and that's okay. Mm. So here, here's the whole poem. There's more French. I'm not going to read it in French. Okay, that is Martin Landau in Space 1999 Season 2. Very good, Calamond. Let's see. English degree. Minor. All right, here's the poem from my, my number one choice. There is a certain doorway on Boylston Street that I passed by on foot, suited and shod, one of many each Tuesday toward lunch with a certain woman, regarded each Tuesday by the perfect turning gaze of a white Persian regarding me, love-bound, sped by desire, and returning to the certainty of his fur. Dead going, you know what? I'll bet I know what Dingus did, Kelly Wand. Do you want to hear my theory? It's some Disney movie. No, you know what? I'll bet it's King's Speech. Oh, really? He would do that to us. He saw that without us. I know. He he saw that without us. He did. And that sound, I'm wondering if maybe that inspired the topic. And he's now quoting King's Speech, and he knows we haven't seen the movie. Or King's English, whatever it's called. The Colin Firth thing. Am I right, Dingus? You're not right. Oh, good. Okay. Although that is the movie I saw this week that quoted Hamlet. Ah. That made me think, oh, what? Oh, no, I didn't eliminate, <laughs> oh. I didn't eliminate Shakespeare films. Well, what is your I mean, great poem That from? great poem, Hamlet. <laughs> what is that poem, Ding? It's awesome. And what is it from? It's obviously that, not Ed Wood. It's not Ed Wood. It's Plan 9 from Outer Space. And <laughs> it's poem 9. See what I did there? <laughs> I like that. Poem 9 from Outer Space. This is from a, a film called The Freshman. What? Uh, uh, what? Yeah, I know. What part? I don't remember that. This is uh, a 1990 film directed and written by Andrew Bergman, and the the freshman um, Andrew Bergman of Mannequin fame, and the Nick. No, no not Mannequin. Weekend at Bernie's. Is what I'm of. Wait, wait. Weekend. Isn't this the guy who did Weekend at Bernie's? Or no? I prefer to think of him that's... as this movie and Honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, maybe that's right. Okay, good lord. Same thing. Because it's got in in the title. That's all Tom notices. <laughs> all right, so go ahead. So the freshman, which is playing this awesome use of a poem in the freshman. So Marlon Brando plays um, Carmine Sabatini, uh, who he's he's a, he's doing a send up of his Godfather role, and he's purposely doing this within the film because this is all a con, and he's he's playing this Godfather esque type role. Uh, and Matthew Broderick is this kid who is the patsy. He's just fresh to New York, going to film school in New York, and he gets caught up in this scam involving Carmine Sabatini. And he starts to fall. He falls for the whole thing. He thinks that, that Marlon Brando is really this crime boss, and he's asking him to do these favors for him. And he follows him around one day. He's not really sure what to think of the whole thing. He's very uncomfortable with the illegalities of it. And one day, uh, Marlon Brando, Carmine Sabatini, comes to visit him at his dorm room. <laughs> he, he knocks on his door, and, and uh, Frank Whaley, I think, is his roommate, uh, is just bowing and scraping. Oh, my God, the Godfather's here. And, and runs out. And, and, and Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick have this 
nice little scene where they sit down in his dorm room, and Marlon Brando starts asking Matthew Broderick just personal questions. You know, why were you following me? And, and Matthew Broderick talks about, uh, you know, this and that. And Marlon Brando talks about reading Curious George to his daughter. And, and Matthew Broderick says, oh, my, my real dad read that for me. And he points to this picture that's over on his desk. And Marlon Brando reaches for that and says, oh, what did, what did your dad do? And it turns out Matthew Broderick's dad died when he was six years old in a motorcycle accident. And he was a poet. And, Mar- and Marlon Brando asks, oh, do you know any of his poems? And Matthew Broderick says, yeah, I, I know a few of them. And Marlon Brando says, why, why, don't you, why don't you recite one to me? And Matthew Broderick's a little shy about it. He hasn't done this in a long time. But he picks his favorite, which is the one I just read to you. And it's called A Doorway on Boylston Street. And he haltingly recites this poem to Marlon Brando. It's, it's this wacky little comedy, but it's this great real moment between these two guys where one guy is conning him but is trying to make a bond with him, trying to reach out to him so that the con works, of course. But from Matthew Broderick's point of view, he's making a connection with this guy and revealing something about his father and reciting this poem. And and I believe it's just a poem written by Andrew Bergman for this film. But But I love the poem. It's a beautiful little poem. And just that line, when you first hear it, the, about, you know, he's running off to see his lover, and this every time he goes by this doorway, this cat looks at him, and that last line, returning to the certainty of his fur, is a line of poetry that will never leave my brain. And, in fact, Marlon Brando nods after hearing it and says, oh, you know, he says that last line, he really likes that last line, he particularly likes that Matthew Broderick knows his father's poetry and says it by heart there. And it's just... A wonderful little moment of bonding in the midst of this weird, funny comedy, and it's a real genuine. I just, they uh, just grooved on it. So, the, the, this particular poem, this moment of poetry, is my favorite in film. Very nice, Dingus. Now, what inspired? Did you say your, your number two inspired the topic? Your Michael Caine bit? No, no, it was Rundown. It was watching what oh, it was Rundown okay. a couple of weeks ago and, and hearing. Um, and hearing him do, do that during this ridiculous action scene, and the other two fell in place very quickly. And I, I wouldn't, I, I looked through my collection. I thought of a couple others that I that I might have liked to use, but nothing unseated these three. Uh, I almost replaced number three with my runner-up, but um, Dead Poet Society. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, no, it's from The Hobbit where they're singing. But numbers numbers two and one were always going to be. Uh, there's right, a whip. There's a way, Dingus. <laughs> <laughs> Is that from the books, Kelly Wand? Yeah, it is. It's the original title of the third book. Wow. Um, he changed it because it was in Celtic. Hey, Weekend at Bernie's doesn't have the word in in it. I take that back. Aha. Uh-huh. I was wrong. Let's see. What were you going to say? And Guillermo del Toro was not in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, so I take that back. Right. What? Uh, uh, Dingus, what were your runners up? Uh, I have one runner up. This almost replaced Rundown, and it's, um, it's this great moment in Before Sunrise. Oh, God, I hate that moment, because I actually watched that on YouTube and thought it was terrible. Why don't you explain it, Dingus, and then I'm going to make it. James Garner movie? Yes. Yeah. I, I, that. I love that moment. I think it's a great well, moment. Explain the moment Why so I can it? make fun of it, because Ethan Hawke doing Dylan Thomas doing W.H. Auden is not, does not work for me. <laughs> oh, before Sunrise. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, oh, oh, okay. about the moment where they hire the guy. The guy uh, Tom, stop before sunrise. Shut up. <laughs> there, there's, the, 
that Viennese dude who who's offering to write them a poem, and, oh. and he says, um, "You can pay me whatever you want." And he goes off, and they're they're talking, and then he writes a poem, and then he reads it to them, and and it's it's uh, like delusion angel or something. It's this embarrassing poem, but it. it it talks about their situation, and it might very well be a scam. One of these guys who who has a this, this poem, and he just plugs in whatever word they tell him because he says, "Give me a word, and I'll work that into the poem." And I think their word is milkshake. Uh, and it's a, a great little scene with this this guy down at the river writing poems, reads this poem to them, hands it to them, and they give him a little bit money. And I really like that little moment. That's nice. No, see what I was thinking of, Dingus. Now I feel bad. Uh, is when I was clicking around looking at YouTube video, when I found the YouTube video of In the Bedroom, there was also one of uh, Ethan Hawke doing some W.H. Auden line about time running on like rabbits or something. And Ju- <laughs> Julia Delpy, she has her, her head in his lap, and they're just sitting under some picturesque fountain or something. Uh, and he says the line, and she's like, what? What is that? And he says, oh, it's from uh, a recording I had of Dylan Thomas reading W.H. Auden. And he does his rendition of Dylan Thomas's voice, <laughs> reading a W.H. Auden poem, and it's terrible. Uh, he does an impression of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He definitely tries to do a voice. <laughs> I don't Cause remember. He, that. Yeah, because he talks about how great Dylan Thomas's voice is, and then he does his impression, and it's just like wow. I mean, as a guy who's like, well, I won't say, <laughs> but you know, if you want to impress chicks with poetry, don't also do it with a voice. You know, don't. <laughs> Keep your impressions and your memorization. What about a whore? <laughs> yeah, do not press a chick with a whore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, uh, speaking of green poetry, like money, which we weren't, um, Leprechaun has a lot of good poems in it, but the one that sticks in my memory is when he goes, this old lep, he played one, he played pogo on his lung. Because one in lung rhyme it kind of rhyme that could work there there are uh i i almost thought this doesn't really count but i thought of you know the way that some movies play with nursery rhymes like the whole one two freddy's coming for you thing in mm. the nightmare on elm street movies uh i don't know that that really counts as poetry so much as just a, an eerie ditty um Counts as poetry more than Hamlet does. That's for damn sure. I have a point. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, do you guys recognize this? I'm going to do a quick little poem, and you guys tell me if you know what it's from. Because this always stuck out in my mind, too. Peggy Ann Snow, Peggy Ann Snow, please let me follow wherever you go. Nope. No? Hey, Probably so you got married. I thought you might know. It's from Magic, where Anthony Hopkins uh, tracks down Anne-Margaret, uh, it's the the poem that he used to say to her because he was in love with her when they were kids. Uh, and, you know, Fats ends up, the the dummy says the poem to him. And uh, You guys don't remember that? Okay. No, well, a little bit of poetry. I kind of do now, yeah. But her name was Peggy, right? Yeah, Peggy Ann Snow. Yeah. That's her name. Well, she's married to Ed Lauder now. In, in the movie, she's married to Ed Lauder. And it's, uh, so she has a different name. No, Ann Margaret? Yeah, isn't it Ed Lauder plays the husband who ends up getting murdered? And I thought she married a uh, Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau was after Sophie Loren. <laughs> uh, Lauder would be a better rhyme for that movie, though. Yeah, uh, I think it's right. Lauder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things when I was looking at my list of poetry and movies, uh, I, I would love to find this, but the, one of the things that was cited was truly madly deeply. The, the movie with Alan Rickman is like a ghost and a Julie. 
uh, rats. Dingus, who's the lead actress in Truly Madly Deep? Uh, Who plays which advert? It's not Julie Delpy, I know that. Julie Brown? No. Something like that. Um, but there's, that, that apparently was listed as a movie with a great instance of poetry. And I'm imagining, holy caps, that must be like Alan Rickman reading some awesome poem. Uh, I should find that, but, uh, but I couldn't. Uh, hmm. uh, let's see. Uh, so another Tom Wilkinson-related one. Can you guys... Here, here you go. I'm going to quiz you. This is an instance of, of classical poetry. It involves Tom Wilkinson, the poems being recited to him, and it is the title of the movie. Duplicity. <laughs> Michael, um, do poetry in that Michael? No, unfortunately. Not that I know of when he goes crazy that uh, Michael can't know what the heck is that movie. Dingus, uh, why would you give me incomplete? Oh, sorry. He just uh, was howling. Howling. And his howl. Oh, Julie White. Julie White. Isn't it Julie White? Uh, I think uh, Julie Brown. Julie, you might be right, Dingus. I'm going to go with that in Truly Madly Deeply. Uh, Michael Clayton is the George uh, Clooney yeah, thing. Right. Uh, that would be a poem. He goes crazy, but I don't think he does poetry. No, this is someone saying poetry to him, and it gives us the title of the movie. Michael Clayton, Michael Clayton, don't be hating. <laughs> okay, the person saying the poetry to him, Kristen Dunst. Ah, it's uh, Eternal Sunshine. Yes, <laughs> Pope Alexander. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I love that little bit. Wait, why isn't that on your list? That's a good movie. Can right. I do that instead of my dumbass Ed Wood one? Right, you can't. And, and my other two dumbass ones, <laughs> whatever they were. <laughs> Seems like forever ago. That's uh, good. In, in, in Apocalypse Now, the, the, the wigged-out Dennis Hopper when, when, uh, when Michael Sheen, or no, uh, Martin Sheen. Wow, well, I'm confusing my scenes. When Martin Sheen <laughs> He would have been great in <laughs> that. <laughs> when Martin Sheen finds the wigged out Dennis Hopper, who's, you know, covering for Colonel Kurtz, who's his right hand man, during one of Dennis Hopper's tears, where he's talking about how brilliant Kurtz is, he says something about, uh, Dennis Hopper says, Man, I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas, man, compared to him, man. Which is a, a bit from, uh, from Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. There's apparently a couple of T.S. Eliot references in uh, Apocalypse Now. You know, I think that might be in um, Love and Death, too. I think he, he makes fun of that poem in Love and Death. Woody Allen does? Yeah. Well, that's, you know how I feel about that movie. I know you do. <laughs> hey, isn't, um, isn't there Blake? Or the second one. Isn't Blake used in Blade Runner somehow? I don't think so. I thought about that. I, I know that Roy Batty, like, there's this implication that he's very poetic in that whole sea beams off the Tannhäuser gate or whatever that stuff is. Oh, okay. But I, I, I was thinking that Tiger was in there, but I think you're right. Oh, actually, you might be... Blake's in uh, Confessions of Alter Boys or whatever. Live, dangerous Lives of Alter Boys. Dangerous Lives, right. Confessions of a Dangerous Alter Boy. There's also a uh, horror movie about a tiger that gets let loose in a house that I think is called Tiger, Tiger. Tiger, Tiger. It might just be... Is it Tiger, Tiger? Maybe it's either, either it's just called Burning Bright, or it's called Tiger Tiger, or it's called Tiger Tiger Burning Bright. It's one of those three things. But at any rate, tigers. <laughs> no, but there's only one tiger, Fire. though. <laughs> and I don't think anyone in the movie ever acknowledges the Blake poem. By the way, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's public domain, uh, and they had read it. All right, Kelly, what were your runners up? That was it. All right, I didn't have it. this was hard. All minor <laughs> leprechaun themed. I ain't reading any more of that shit. 
All right, well, are you guys ready for what we're doing next week? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those are hard. Give us this, something easy. This is going to be easy. This is going to be easy. And by the way, there's, there's going to be a thread for this on quarter to three. No one will post in it. This is going to have, like, Dingus, <laughs> Dingus is a short like way to it. kill a thread. Dingus, you know how to start a dead thread already. Way to go. Well done. My thread, on the other hand, they're going to go crazy. You guys ready for this? So this That's is inspired gonna... partly by Tron. And partly by another horrible, horrible movie I just watched this week. Uh, I watched Dune this week. And there's a point in Dune where they discover these things called uh, weirding modules or whatever. It's a a microphone you put up where it looks like you're about to do a stage show, you know, like Madonna, some little microphone that's unobtrusive. It, like, just sits there on the side of your mouth. And then you hold up what looks like an old-timey camera, and you point it at something, and then you say, chuta, or you say, like, a killing word or something, and it's... It's cho-cha. Come on, Cho-cha, right. Uh, Embarrassing. Hey, what's the name of the little monkey kid from Land of the Lost? Um... Isn't that... Mr. Nelson? <laughs> I don't know. But it, there's a little monkey kid in Land of the Lost. You just said his name, Dingus. Cho Cho? I don't know. But anyway. Well, he no longer needs the weirding module. Uh, and, and, and this weirding module is such a stupid-looking weapon. Like, it's the most... Mor- Who would ever want to use that? And there's another point later on in the Dune movie where there are all these montages of battles that are just absurd where the Fremen have what looks like a World Wrestling Federation belt buckle. It's like something they just hold at waist level. It's supposed to be shooting out laser beams or something. The weapons in that movie are so stupid. Uh, and, and I was reminded of Tron, this idea that Tron thought back in the 80s, hey, Star Wars had lightsabers. We're going to have Frisbees. How cool would that be? Didn't work out that well. I think, Kelly Wan, you, or one of you guys briefly defended the Frisbees. I don't know how far you would go with that. I think Frisbees are a little silly. So, so instead, what I want, and I'm going to take two things off the table. I want uh, weapons you'd want to use. Three weapons you'd want to use. First of all, no lightsabers. Everybody gets it, Okay lightsabers, duh, right, we know. And that's kind of the funny thing, too, in a way about Tron, is lightsabers really are kind of timeless. You know, it's cool to have a sword. It's even cooler to have a glowing sword. Star Wars, that's one thing Star Wars got really, really right. So, yes, everybody loves a lightsaber. Uh, you know, you, you took lightsabers off for the sound effects. Why can you keep doing that? That's not fair. Because it's going to force you guys to come up with three other things, because then we're going to have everybody talking about lightsabers. Lightsabers, lightsabers, lightsabers. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. So in another thing that we saw recently that, uh, Kelly Wan, you balked at this, but Dingus and I both noticed it, is in Faster, Driver's little snub-nosed revolver was really cool. It had personality. The movie appreciated it. So that might be an example. So I'm taking that off the table just because I think it's an example of the kind of thing I want from you guys. Is I want from you three weapons you'd want to use. Uh, what so about maybe, a table as a weapon? Is that on the table? Don't do that. <laughs> So you're you're taking off lightsabers and that particular snub nose revolver from Faster or yeah. all No 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 just that just that an example of a cool weapon that we noticed. Like that okay, cool. had personality would be cool. So I'm just gonna take it off the table because I want to bring that up as an example. And Do the leprechaun's yeah. teeth count as more than one weapon? <laughs> but that was the cool thing. in Dune, you know, the, the knife, they never explained this, but the knife is supposed to be a sandworm uh tooth. Uh, oh, Gamjabar? No, Gamjabar is something very different. And Gamjabar, well, thanks, you might have scooped one of my choices, Kelly Wan. Nice work. Whoops. Gamjabar, thanks for telling me. <laughs> Gamjabar was a cool one because it was the little thimble with the, the needle, the poison needle in the end. Mm, the pointed mm-hmm. end, too. Yeah. Uh, 
so, all right. Any any other questions? You guys, I, I think this it's a pretty easy topic, yeah? Wait, do these have to be from movies? No, no, no. These are from books only, and only Dickens books. They have to be from Dickens books that begin with the letter B. Mm-hmm. So, Bleak House. Barnaby Rudge. Barnaby Rudge. Uh, <laughs> all Saints that come in. That one. Uh, Old so. Curiosity Shop. What about the minor? Okay, never mind. All right, so there you go. That's next week's 3x3. Three three. We will also be seeing uh, True Grit. Mm. Oh, by the way. Mm. What? Well, in Rooster Cogburn, the sequel to True Grit, the, the original one, uh, there was a Gatling gun mounted on a White River raft. I believe it. What? Really? Yeah, doesn't he? Doesn't it sounds he? like a peckinpah. It does sound peckinpah, but doesn't Rooster Cogburn have like a Gatling gun mounted on a raft? I don't know that I've seen the second one. Okay. Well, I'm taking that off the table, too, so there. Yeah. Um, Just take all of them off the table, every one. <laughs> no, you guys got to come up with three uh, of your own that are not light. What about... Gomjabars. Uh, a movie... Okay, is this off the table? Any movie where in the preview they said he has to use the only weapon he has himself? It's whatever you can sleep with yourself at night. After Ew. You <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yay. So we're going to have... Uh, What's her name's boobs from Zapped? <laughs> well, so now, now keep in mind these are weapons you would use, not weapons that you like. Like I'd use them. It's sort of like thinking about. Hell I, yeah! All right. <laughs> not its weapons per se, or would I? All right, so join us for that. We will be seeing True Grit. Join us for that as well. I am Tom Chick. I am joined by Christian Milowski. Mil- I think is that right? Hold on, uh, Christian Morales. So close. And L.A. Wand. Life is like a bowl of chocolates could be a haiku line if the Japanese weren't dicks about it. The Grid. A digital frontier. I'm trying to picture clusters of information as they move through the computer. Dogs are cool. What do they look like? Horses are here. Motorcycles. Where the circuits are freeways. I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see. And then, one day, I got in. This podcast was brought to you by the Golden Globes, where quality matters and all matter qualifies. Proceed to games.